What's up my fellow ambitious poker players and welcome to the Mechanics of Poker podcast in which me, Renee, aka The Wacko and Adam Carmichael deconstruct high stakes poker players, figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition. If you are ambitious about making more progress in your poker career, go over to their site, pokerambition.com and find out which service is best for you. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi there, boys and girls. Welcome to the second episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast, in which today we are going to be chatting with Ben Raven, aka Ben Abed Beat, poker player from the UK, plays high stakes online cash games at night and is actually a psychotherapist by day. Adam, I can imagine you must have gotten quite curious when you found out he is a psychotherapist, licensed psychotherapist, let me add. Yeah, I'm super excited for today's guest and to figure out how he manages to balance a full-time high-stakes poker career with being a psychotherapist. And yeah, very interested to hear what skills he's learned and how it's helped him on his poker career. It's a very deep form of psychology to get into, so it'll be interesting to hear his lessons he's learned and how we can apply that to the audience. So yeah, very excited. How about yourself, Rene? What are you looking forward to picking from the guest? Yeah, I'm actually also quite curious how, you know, studying psychology in such a deep way, how that maybe has impacted his technical game as well. Maybe understanding more that we have certain limitations and what we can consistently execute. Maybe he tweaked his strategies a little bit uh, to maybe simplify stuff a little bit more because he understands his limitations a little bit better. Also, I've played a lot with Ben and Beat over the years. I mean, he's been a professional poker player, I think, 12 years from what I read. Uh, basically the same time as me. And over the years, we've played a lot against each other. And especially in the last, let's say, four, five, six years, he's gotten way better. Uh, and I'm very curious, like, what he did that made him progress to the high stakes. Uh, also, in terms of, um, he mentioned that he's very GTO-oriented. Uh, always curious to learn more about that. So yeah, I would say without further ado, let's speak to Ben himself. There we are. Ben is on. Hello, Ben. Hi. How you getting on? All good. All good. We've already hyped you, uh, your Batman lifestyle of doing <laughs> something during the day and something else during the night. Mm. Um, I'm very happy that we have you on i've been following you you've been doing some things on social media as well for the last year i saw you posting yeah. quite a lot of graphs swingy life of a poker player yeah um i stopped posting on instagram more recently in the past couple of months to focus a bit more uh, on playing and studying and that kind of stuff and deciding what i want to kind of do next with everything um but yeah i did post like very consistently for quite a long time yeah what was your initial uh initial motivation to start posting I think it was main was it mainly resu results graphs or was there also more educational mm. stuff involved so no, i cannot really call yeah so originally um i actually started posting on two plus two so i have a two plus two blog and i started posting into on two plus two the end of 2013 um and i actually posted my results on that in that blog every day for uh 
maybe six or seven years i had my all of my my poker journey from that day forward um so a lot of people who follow on instagram so only some of those people know that i did the two plus two blog before but it all started on two plus two with the poker goals and challenges um and that's kind of got like documented from like playing 100 and now full ring moving into six max and like shot taking and then holidays and all that kind of stuff the therapy training and then it moved on to instagram because basically two plus two was kind of dying and it still kind of is i mean people kind of go on there a little bit but not so much um and then i just basically moved the format exactly the same format over to instagram uh mm -hmm. so i just had i'd like post three times a week in like one post i would have two hands that would be for discussion one hand would be kind of like a comical hand like versus a recreational or versus a reg where someone's blown up or i've blown up or something like that Another one would be like a kind of an ask what people think we should do. And then there would be like a graph of the day or the week as well. And then I would do like a month recap as well at the end. All right. What was your, so you basically moved to Instagram to reach a broader audience, I guess. Yeah. So around the same time I started posting on Instagram, I decided to, I finished my training of my masters and I decided that I was going to be outreaching to poker players to do either psychotherapy or mental game coaching at the time. Um, and then, so it, Instagram was just like a really good place. And Adam, you, you know, this as well, like using Instagram to kind of like put out yeah. your content and, and for people to be able to kind of have a bit more, see you a bit more and get to know you a little bit more. Um, and yeah, it kind of helped grow the business in that and from that side of things. And also the fact I just love posting poker content transparently as well, mainly. So basically we can just end the podcast right here, send people to do your blog and that's it for yeah. people actually, for the people who are actually interested in the blog, where, where can they find the blog? It's on two plus two. What's it's on two plus two. The, um, the blog title is now mastering mental game and mental health. That was the, the title. So it was like kind of a, cro a crossover between, uh, poker and psychotherapy and kind of my journey and how people could like just get involved and like kind of, uh, relate to it a little bit. Yeah. All right. Well, we're so not going to end the pod right here, but if in the end of the podcast, you know, people <laughs> want to know more about Ben and want to see every step of his journey, go over to 2 plus 2. Also, make sure to follow him on Instagram for more recent stuff. Um, mm. What was your in initial motivation to share? To share all this so that's stuff? Like why, a, yeah. why did you want to document it? Hmm. So the very, very first uh, decision to start posting was for accountability. That was like the sole reason I was like, I've got these goals. I have these, uh, I had a really terrible year in 2013 where I tried to chase supernova elite. And after like one month, I basically had to sack it off because I was terrible at poker firstly, but also it was just like a huge toll playing so much. Um, and I decided that I needed to have like some goals, some ideas, some like reasons to play and the accountability was there for posting in the blog but like kind of oh after time it became less about accountability and more about transparency because i felt like there were a lot of blogs that would only post when they were winning they'd only post winning graphs they'd only post winning hands winning sessions winning days they would kind of uh use it in a way to kind of well not not necessarily i think it's quite natural to do that but the image that was being conveyed wasn't really that of a professional poker player. It was more like, oh, this is all the good stuff and we don't really talk about the bad stuff as much. Um, and then it just became about, because the feedback I received was like, oh, I really love that like you post your winning days and your losing days, regardless of what's happened. You talk about how you feel about it. You talk about like the struggles that you're having, but we can also enjoy the highs with you. So it's more of a, an eclectic 
blog. And then as I got more and more feedback, I just really enjoy posting. And then it kind of spurred me on to have like bigger goals, bigger challenges. Um, and then also talk about my personal life a little bit more, um, which I think in two plus two, that was quite, that, at the time, that was quite unusual. I think a lot more people do that now. Definitely. Yeah, the poker community is gonna way more transparent. I actually really like that from most people that are out there nowadays. They are very, very open because in the end, everyone struggles with stuff, right? We all struggle with certain issues and it's completely normal. And I think, you know, it's, it's almost like this Instagram model problem, right? That it all looks so beautiful from the outside. And then other people following yeah. your journey might think like, oh, wow, I wish I was like Ben because Ben only has winning days uh yeah you know but yeah the reality is not like that so i think it's good for the poker community to actually see uh also in terms of for example you uh in in the questionnaire that you filled in before the podcast you also mentioned that like, it took you around seven years to get to high sex i remember our first guest yours it took eight years and this is the journey is often oh, did it? yeah it's something that they often forget for me as well it took for sure seven eight years as well before i reached high stakes <clears throat> Yeah, there's almost like a bit of a, a fallacy, isn't there? It's like you see someone at high stakes and you just assume that they've been there. They've always been there. And you don't you don't you don't see the behind the scenes of them putting in the reps of them getting crushed, them shot taking, getting crushed, getting moving up again, getting crushed, feeling like they can't they don't want to get up and grind anymore. Um, you don't really hear much of that. Yeah. Uh, so it's actually really refreshing, I, I feel, to, to see some of that process. Yeah. yeah, and also it's because else people people might say like, oh, look at Ben high stakes. Oh, I'm sure he got really lucky, you know, look at him playing high stakes. But they didn't see all the struggles before. It was something yeah. that you also mentioned in the first podcast about, especially in tournaments, right? Oh, he suddenly made a big bink. Yeah, you didn't see all the grinding that happened before that. Yeah, I mean, the, a lot of people will call you out on that and they'll say that I actually did bink a tournament early on in my career. And it, <laughs> did, it definitely helped springboard me into into a bit more financial security. But no, yeah, you're right. There's there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it than those pinks. I'm surprised so it you took mentioned... you seven years to, to reach high stakes. Even my perception of you is that you were just at high stakes. So it's quite interesting that it can be that same. I can experience the same thing for other people. Yeah, no, for, for me, especially, I think it took around seven years before I started to play high stakes. I grinded mid stakes for a long, long time. Mm. I think just like just like most people, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, then you notice that then you probably don't notice me, right? I'm just grinding my way through my mid stakes. Well, you were always playing higher than me when I was moving up. I was playing 100 and L full ring, I think, and you were already kind of at mid stakes. So I think you've been playing for quite a few years, longer than me, at least a minute. Yeah. That that I, I definitely reached higher stakes earlier than you. So probably when you were playing lower mid stakes, I was already playing high stakes. But yeah. before that, you know, I was playing mid stakes for quite a while. Mm. But actually, it's funny that you mentioned that your your poker career kind of got a got a boost um, when you actually bring the tournament. I mean, I know you now more as a cash game player. Uh, when you got into poker, you mentioned that what really attracted you about poker was the few aspect, and you quote quote said few <laughs> made me yeah. kind of curious okay ben what do you mean with the few aspect of poker yeah so that all comes from home games and playing with friends and it being like about beating your friends in parts showing them bluffs being able to kind of play your man type thing this really old school kind of live poker stuff which exists right it definitely exists we're not gonna i'm not gonna deny that you people people can get reads of other people but it was more about that element of, of beating my friends 
um, at, at the game at, to start with. And then that was kind of going into casinos and being able to like play people who were a lot older than me. Like I was basically a boy, I was like 18. And there was like 40, 50 year old, you know, these grinders who play these freeze outs and 20 pound rebuys at the casino and that kind of thing. And actually feeling like I can actually challenge people at a poker table who are a lot older than me and in no other aspects in my life as a teenager or as like kind of a young adult, are you able to really compete with true adults? But poker kind of brought that through because it wasn't just about experience, it was about kind of how you were able to interpret, take advantage of a situation, outplay, outmaneuver, outthink somebody else. Whereas like a sport, for example, it's way more unusual to be able to kind of actually beat someone who's more experienced, I think. Yeah, that, that makes it so the few is more, especially also if you really sort of annihilate an opponent, you know, you really got a good read, you really <laughs> win the money of him because you made a good exploit. You can really tap yourself on the shoulder, you know, whereas maybe nowadays in poker, if you just, you know, he does something GTO, you do something GTO and the pot ends up in his shoes. It's like, yeah, we were both GTO. So nobody really won here, actually. But in the past, it was more like, I got you, you know, yeah. personal satisfaction from it. Exactly. Absolutely. You still experience that sometimes nowadays where you really like, okay, now I got you. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I think it's usually those situations where you're making like, uh, you're kind of exploit, it's usually an exploit. Um, uh, and it's going to be some kind of like super, super thin jam or something like that. And it just feels really good, especially when you get called by a hand that shouldn't call in theory. And then it's mm -hmm. kind of like my extra bit of feel has kind of led you into making another mistake, even though I'm making a mistake in the first place, probably by pushing it that far. Uh, but and then sometimes it doesn't work out. And you feel pretty stupid, of course. Yeah, the exploitation world has two extreme ends. You either feel like a genius or you feel like a complete idiot. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, much of my career, I felt like an idiot a lot of times, particularly early on. Probably why I didn't achieve as much as I could have. <laughs> yeah, you actually mentioned then, then later what kept you into poker. I guess a tournament being helped. Uh, but you were also yeah. then mentioning the complexity. So at first it was kind of the few aspect and then what maybe kept you in poker was the complexity yeah. of the game was that was that so yeah. that was about more when you turned pro that you really got deeper into the game that that attracted you to the complexity so i think i i think i think that when i use the word complexity i think i have multiple meanings to that so like i'm talking like the theoretical complexity of the game that's definitely a huge consideration and that's i really i used to hate studying poker and now i really really enjoy studying poker um, and like understanding the complexity of the game, but also like by complexity, I mean like the, the emotional complexity that kind of goes into being a professional poker player, like the emotional makeup of me as a professional poker player and the complexity of that, not only because of the way I've found myself in the career as a professional poker player amongst all these other people who are professional poker mm -hmm. players, but also like kind of my own history, my own life experience, my own tendencies my own ways of being and the how complex that is within being a professional poker player i don't just see it as kind of that like the theoretical side of the game and and um and the complexity of kind of executing strategy if that makes sense i don't know if it does i mean obviously if you say this to a fellow poker player it makes a lot of sense if you play if you say this to you know, at your local party to someone who you explain <laughs> to play poker. Say, oh, great. So you, you you play cards for a living, you know? It's like, yeah, it's a little bit more complex than that, <laughs> right? 
Yes. That's kind of a part that's often overlooked. I think indeed something that I enjoy about poker is that it indeed is like the the complete package, basically, right? You've been playing poker for 12 years, I read. And if you look at what you've learned throughout those 12 years, I mean, it's so much broader than playing cards, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so it's a way of being. It's a way of of existing and living, for sure. Which is in itself very complex. Not only for poker players, but for living, you mean? Yeah. (laughs) Living is very complex. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. It's a, this is actually an interesting point. Maybe I'm sometimes way too inwards when I'm like, oh yeah, my, my life is 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 very complex because poker is so complex. But probably if I talk to anyone else in other profession, uh, he probably experiences similar things. Um, yeah. I want to go back to um, you mentioned. So you binked the tournament. Were you already pro back then? Yeah, I mean, pro. Or was that pro. was, that, or were you kind of like, now I'm pro because I beat the tournament? I so the the way way in which it went down was I left school when I was like 17, 18, and I went back when I was twenty. Um, and like a good few of my friends decided that they were going to pursue poker professionally and move to London. Um, and I basically wasn't in the financial situation. I think I had three thousand pounds to my name, and this is when I was like twenty. Um, and my a good friend of mine, I don't know if you remember a reg called Ponty Lad from back in the day. Um, he's, an, he's a British Welsh guy, uh, now lives mm-hmm. in Australia. And he was always the kind of one of the guys that really helped me in my poker. He was always more successful than me. And he basically said, like, Ben, like, you don't have the finances to do it. If you don't go with these guys, if you don't move with them, this is my three best friends who are better than me at poker. He's like, you just, you're not going to make it in poker. Like, you're not going to be able to do it. You really need that support. So I was like, all right, fine. We'll like go for, go for it and ended up moving to London. And I was literally like down to my last month's rent. And then I won this, uh, came second in a T-coupe for $75,000 and then won the big 55 for 20,000 in the same week, just before Christmas. Um, and it basically meant that I was able just to continue living in London and actually pursue and continue to, to study and learn how to play poker. I would say, I wouldn't say from then on forward, it was really easy. I think I then dusted probably 25, 30, 40% of that, trying to learn poker on coaching and trying new formats and that kind of thing. But it was then that I was actually able to kind of really go like, okay, I've got enough of a bankroll to actually try and get good at poker and actually try and make it work. Just got so lucky though, for, for it to worked out that way, for sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it would have happened. You know, you would have maybe made it anyway, but... This was your way of making it, right? You got handed the uh, you got handed the bone early, but as you said, I think that's always interesting. It's not sustainable. You're gonna lose something of that back because you need to progress, right? You need to put in the reps in order to actually develop the skills to make you a sustainable uh, um, mm. poker player, successful poker player at that limit. If you just bink a tournament, you will lose money back, right? This is a, a rec- yeah. recurring story with a lot of poker players, and that's simply because they don't have the experience yet that's needed in order to sustain uh, at that stake that they're currently playing, right? So you were yeah. playing tournaments at the time or you were just playing, you were just all over the place or mainly mainly tournaments? <laughs> I heard you say you were kind of looking I, for what to do, what's next? I was all over the place. Um, I was playing some cash games, playing full ring 100 NL. Um, and decided to play this T-Coupe. Actually, I didn't even know T stood for Turbo, actually. 
thought it was a $215 tournament and suddenly I was like level four and I had like eight big blinds. I was like, what the hell is this tournament series? And then obviously just won every 60-40 for like three hours and then it was kind of over. Um, but my goal was to play cash, yeah, and be rate, a rate back grinder. That was going to be at least at the start how I was going to be kind of paying my bills. Um, but kind of going back to what you said, I think that the the binking the tournament actually just reinforced my like lack of uh, respect for the game like i think i didn't have enough respect for the value of being a poker player the value for being able to choose my own hours all of that kind of stuff back then um and winning the tournament in a sense you you don't know what you don't know really you don't know like i don't really kind of have the foresight oh my god i've got so lucky i was about to go broke i was probably not going to be able to pursue this like in the way that i wanted to pursue it you just have all this money and then suddenly you get lazy again and i definitely got lazy again straight after so it was kind of like a good thing and also just a bit of a it was a blessing but also not um i didn't take i took it for granted that's what i think i, I would say yeah, the necessity yeah you you had 3k to your name so the necessity to perform and make money was quite high right so the goal poker make money bomb bank a tournament goal sort of achieved right short term at least we are satisfied we can eat party for quite a quite a while um then actually it was funny that you mentioned that then you maybe had some motivational issues you mentioned that you then started a supernova elite challenge was that the same year so um it was so it was one year after that. In fact, yeah, you're right. No, you're right. So the tournament was in D December 2012, and I started the PGC uh, in December 2013, and I tried to go for Supernova Elite January of 2013. So yeah, it was like in that same space. So yeah, all over the place perfectly encapsulates that whole period, to be honest. <laughs> so you were like, okay, this is, this is online poker. We're just... You know, the money is just going to come to us. Oh, the Supernova Elite, let's do that as well. No problem. You started. Yeah. Can yeah. you kind of, you know, yeah. take us by the hand to, to, to tell us how that went? So the great thing about this is that any question after 2013, if I sometimes forget, I can actually go back to my blog and I can have a look at the period of time. Um, oh, so you started, you started the did... blog together with the Supernova Elite journey? Uh, a bit no a bit after so I, I started it after but but like i can kind of go back to kind of around that time when i wrote about what it was like um and the graph i, I really remember because in the first post of the blog it has my shark scope graph which is just a one line going straight up um and then there's the, the poker graph which is 120 binds below ev at 100 and l just straight down uh 120 binds bearing in mind that if i'd won that tournament if i'd lost quite a lot of money back I've then tried to shot take Supernova Elite and then I've lost $12,000 and 120 binds below V in like the first three weeks or four weeks or something ridiculous. Bearing in mind, I was like a zero or like minus, no, it must've been like a minus three BB player or something at that point at the stakes I was playing. Um, so it basically was a complete train wreck, like an absolute train wreck. How I think, I mean, Adam, you've, you, 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 you've got had Supernova yeah, Elite, right? Yeah, I did it three years. No, never made Supernova Elite. Adam, yeah, you did, yeah. Ah, sorry. Yeah, Adam, you, Adam, yeah Adam, Adam made it. I never and did. Like, you've, I mean, like for every one person that achieves Supernova Elite, there's like 50 or 60 guys that get absolutely destroyed in that first period. Yeah, it's a brutal volume commitment yeah. to keep for the whole year. You don't realize how much you strain yourself mentally, and then your quality of game goes down your mental side of the game goes down a lot and 
yeah, myself, I remember one year I committed quite early, like yourself, like January, February. And then by March, I kind of backed myself into a corner. And yeah, that, that year was just super messy. Like just shouldn't have done an overleaf grind, but yeah, just pushed through it. But yeah, like I said, most people will kind of throw the towel in on that pursuit. Probably wisely so for a lot of people, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, well, I think the main thing would have been I would have just I wouldn't have had the financial means to carry on doing it, which would have been savage. And actually, that I th I feel like if I had had my blog at the beginning of that year and had started it with Supernova Elite Chase, um, I think I would have found it a lot harder to quit because the blog has always been like a real great source of motivation and support. I mean, it's been a it's been a source of some hate uh, over over the years, but like overwhelming support more than there has been hate um so it would have been it would have been difficult to um to carry on even if i had people supporting me to be honest with you what yeah. was it unrealistic looking back then that you were going for supernova elite not having any experience as a professional poker player so i was definitely a, always a volume grinder even when i started playing when i was 18 um i used to play like 24 28 tables and like play like 20 30 000 hand sessions like all the time a lot a lot of the time so i i knew that i had the capability to play a thirty thousand hand session but i think i over overestimated the frequency at which you need to be playing 10 or twelve thousand hands a day uh as opposed to playing thirty thousand hands running yourself into the ground and then being asleep for a day and then not wanting to grind and then suddenly you've averaged eight thousand hands a day or three or six thousand hands a day over four days and I just completely miss, like, misapplied, misunderstood, misjudged, had wild expectations of myself um, that were just all very naive and, and uh, just, well, I was like, I was, as I said, I was a teenager, basically, like 20 years old. So bring us back. So you, you, you are 120 buy-ins below a V, you throw in a towel, right? Which <laughs> yeah. you said maybe with a block you wouldn't have done. Uh, yeah. You go in a moment of reflection then, I guess, like, wow, wait, wait a second. I, I binked 100K. Next month, I won, I lost 120, 120 buy-ins. What's going on? Um, I have to say, I don't think I started reflecting on my life and myself and my feelings and my thoughts until I was probably in my mid-20s, probably about 24. Um, so I think around that time, all my reflection was given to me externally. So particularly I had my ex-girlfriend now at the time, she was my girlfriend, uh, she, it, it, it took a massive strain on our relationship that, uh, that first month of Supernova Elite, obviously. Um, and actually I remember in the blog during the period, I think a little bit after, my girlfriend actually wrote a little bit for my blog to share her, her experience of what it was like because other people were asking what it might be like for a partner of a poker player and that kind of thing. So she was a bit involved. Um, but... I didn't really reflect on it, but she kind of went like, this is like mental, like you're unhappy, you're like getting absolutely destroyed. We're spending no time together. You don't really have a great deal of time for anything else. I'm sure she wasn't as diplomatic as this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and then I basically decided to, yeah, sack it off and, and uh, focus on studying, improving, reducing table count, all of that kind of, that kind of stuff. And in 2013, I think I ended the year. So my graph kind of goes down 120 buy-ins. I think I ended plus 12K for the year. Um, and I probably played like the same amount of hands in the last 11 months as I did in that first month or something like that. Uh, and I ended the same, like maybe 50 or 100 buy-ins below AV for the year. 
All right. So you, you did indeed now also mention your ex-girlfriend at the time. Also, you mentioned that you already moved with an initial group. Yeah. Uh, was... How how important was that support group that you had of the players that you were you, were you living with those players when you yeah. moved with them to London? Yeah, so I was playing with uh, a few guys. Uh, do you remember? I mean, I'll say their names. You know, SMB, SMB, SMB. Do you know this guy? Does ring a bell? Yes. Yeah, um, and then there was a guy called Coinflip underscore Cy, my mate Simon, and then there was another player called Peter Eight Hundred Four. These guys all played a lot lower than you though at the time, so this is why mm -hmm. you might not you might not know them. Um, so there were four of us that moved in together um, and we were in a house in North London. We were there for a year. And yeah, I would, I, I definitely would not have succeeded if they weren't around because they, yeah, they helped support, they helped study, they helped give feedback. And this was, as you know, before the study, uh, the era of study and solvers and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, well, we we're just kind of making up as we were going along, but the more intelligent people did better than the less intelligent people. Whereas now it's kind of like everyone is fair game. Yeah, you needed more perspectives, right? Right now we get the main perspective from Mr. Solver himself. Whereas back then, yeah. you know, you were trying to find people who were Solver-like, who could kind of explain you how the game worked and you would kind of all figure it out together. So yeah. It's a different way, right? We didn't know what was correct. Nowadays, you know what's correct. You have to try to figure out why it's correct. And in the past, we had no sense of what was correct. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. I absolutely, I loved that period. Thinking I'm very nostalgic about that period of poker now. Not least because it kind of worked out, but it was also like the foundation of poker and the career of my career. And like, I mean, I sound like an old person saying this, but people who are starting poker now or in the past few years, they don't know what that was like. Yeah. <laughs> How just weird and, uh, and cowboyish and feel based it was and how egotistical it was it was i mean it's egotistical now but like it was another level back then do you remember the forums do you remember the heads up for roles like just like crazy a lot stuff. of blood yeah <laughs> but it, it does actually make sense right because you can take a little bit more it's what you said that attracted you to poker in the beginning you can take a little bit more credit for if you're doing well because you came up with that shit right you came up with stuff that worked well it's not like yeah the solver told me so now i'm doing it so you, you will have a little bit, your ego will get bloated a little bit more given the way how poker worked back then. Do, yeah. you, do you think that if you look at players now from, let's call it our generation, uh, <laughs> do we have certain benefits compared to the new school generation in your opinion? Because we had to go through that process? Definitely versus recreational players. Uh, I think we are we are just the best at playing recreational players as opposed to new age theory players. I mean, like, obviously, a lot of players nowadays more so now are reg battling. There are so, obviously, because there's, like, way fewer recreationals in comparison to regs. Um, but, like, I definitely feel, like, maybe rightly or wrongly, that my edge versus recreationals is far greater than some of the newer players who are who are, like, playing more reg lineups. For sure and why is that you think what is it about the way we we approach poker back then that helps you play against recreationals well recreationals still play the same as they used to for the most part and um we didn't we we kind of had to use the kind of uh outside of theoretical the exploit kind of world to be able to maximize the amount of money we make versus these players 
whereas like in gto like there's just not there's so there's so much less of that and of course we they do people do exploit and we are exploiting all the time but if we're like putting the word exploit on like a a, a grading system there's obviously like you can exploit someone a small amount or you can exploit someone a huge amount and recreational is still deviating as much as they ever did so we just make more money from them by being able to exploit i think yeah that makes a lot of sense i also think mm -hmm. because I've, i've coached a lot of players as well and then sometimes indeed i i i i i noticed this is one then they're playing over as a recreational and then they start talking about strategies gto <laughs> and i'm like wait 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 let's There is no under the gun big blind. We're playing against a fish. There's only butter yeah. versus big blind because the fish is not positional aware. So let's start with that, right? He has yeah. a wide range in every position. So how do we play in wide ranges, right? What do you think this fish is up to? Okay. Do yeah. you think he's going to float a lot? Do you think he's going to float very little on this board? How should <laughs> we then proceed from that? They're like very much like, yeah, but now my range has to do this. I said, no, forget mm. your range. What, what does the fish have? <laughs> yeah, I, think he, I think he's quite weak. Then what do you do? Yeah, then I should probably now, uh, now, now raise him. So yeah, yeah, but you know, if I start raising this, I raise everything. Yes, <laughs> that's good because he is the recreational. He's over bluffing. Let's go, right? Yeah. It's a completely different train of thought. Absolutely, basically, it definitely can is. You, uh, can you can you relate with this as well, Adam? You you started playing poker around the same period uh, as yeah. me and Ben. My journey was very similar. In the heads up Senegal world, you'd basically play regs for respect in a level. And then you had like a kind of honeymoon period when you got accepted and you just played recreational players for your whole grind as long as you didn't annoy any regs at your level who wanted a, a reg battle for a few weeks yeah playing fish was the same as you've explained it as well like just this feel-based game exploiting them and yeah there's no rules it's like what's his range how do i max exploit that and the players who do that the best um yeah. obviously make the most Yeah, I think it's true, like in the, the modern age, obviously like a lot of players are using solvers as their way of learning. And the old school way without a solver, just every decision was thought through with exploited blends or how do I do this? And I think that creativity of every spot having to think about it led to a lot of kind of good lines that are probably still really good on recreational players. Mm. And actually that's what makes poker still quite fun for me because there still is that stuff. Like I do a bit of reg battling, but I'm not exclusively reg battling. So I actually get that enjoyment of being extremely exploit still, uh, which is a big part of the game that I really enjoy. So you get that that enjoyment too. Any any more thoughts on uh, what we have discussed, Adam? Yeah, so I think I'm interested in what happened around 2014 when Ben started to do some reflecting. So we've got the kind of think of the MTT. <laughs> we've got the playing some cash games and trying to figure stuff out, living with some poker players and having a good support network. And yeah, it sounds like there must've been a big transition moment where you started a bit more internal, it's around 2014. So yeah, I'd love you to talk more about that period. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think around 2014 and around after quite a few years of quite mediocre success, um, and I say mediocre, like I was, I was earning enough money, I was saving a bit of money, but like I, I wasn't, I didn't really have much direction in terms of what I wanted from poker. It was just about making money and living. I was very money driven. Um, and I remember just one one time, my again, talking about my ex-girlfriend, her mum uh, was doing a counseling course. And he she basically said, oh, I think, you, I think, Ben, I think you would really like to do this. And if my mum or dad had said this to me at the time, I probably would have just said like, oh, sorry, both my parents are therapists. So that might give a little bit of context to, to the whole thing. So if they told me that, I probably wouldn't have. 
but because I really valued and respected my ex-girlfriend's mom, I was like, okay, you know what? I'll do like a, I'll do like a 10 week course just to see what it's like. And I basically just fell in love with it, like immediately just learning, um, some other theories, uh, to be able to kind of have like a bit of a bit of space away from, well, firstly, a house full of guys, most of my friendship group are men and being on a therapy training, most people are kind of middle-aged and women and it was quite a very it was a very very different environment and different dynamic and it felt very kind of quite holding quite containing quite warm um and what i really noticed well you have as part of the training you kind of have to be sitting and reflecting and doing group process and that kind of thing this is very early on but i was kind of quite intrigued by that um and i noticed that it became a place where I was able to talk about poker and how I felt about poker and how poker left me feeling. Um, when in like my other circles, even the blog in my friendship circles in the poker world in general, that didn't really get talked about. It was all about like heads up for roles. Like I'm better than you. I'm going to play for this amount of money. Oh, this is how much my big blind a hundred, all that kind of stuff. So it added this really interesting contrast to my day to day work life. Um, and from the from the reflective point of view, the training basically thought, well, you can't you can't do the training unless you're forced into some kind of introspection, I guess. Yeah. So what were some of the first insights that you had when you started to explore your emotions, your feelings in the poker context? So I would say that for the first for the first three years of my training, it didn't come in anywhere near as much as it did towards the end of the training and that might be because i was in a, a slightly worse training to start with i was in more of like a college environment and then i ended up moving to an actual psychotherapy institution which was a lot more intense you had to be in weekly psychotherapy you were doing two to three hour group process every week of group processes basically just for anyone who doesn't know is you have a facilitator which is kind of your tutor and you're in a circle and there's between 10 and 15 of you who are in the group every single week and group process starts and there's a silence. People are just sitting there. You're all kind of, you're all kind of feeling into what might be going on for you in that moment. And then like someone may say something, someone might bring someone for something forward and then someone might respond. And it's kind of this real kind of interestingly weird, scary space where there is no limit, no boundary, but there's also like an expectation that you're exploring some deeper shit that you don't know is kind of there, but, but it is there. And in one of these group processes, poker started to kind of come in. It kind of came in. I think one the one time it came in was I think I was in a really bad downswing and I was feeling a bit kind of like, well, actually I was feeling mixed about it because I felt quite disconnected. Was I meant to feel it? Was I not meant to feel it? Am I allowed to talk about it? And basically it got kind of received by the group and we kind of actually like talked about it and I was able to get in touch with some of the underlying feelings that were going on during the downswing. And that was how it all kind of started. And that was like five years ago. Now you move and in that five years, like the amount of exploration conversation, weekly psychotherapy that's been about not only poker and emotion, but emotion in general um, and how that links to poker has been like, yeah, it's been at the forefront of the, reflective work since then so that's what it's been for the past four or five years amazing yeah. so when you first got into uh, psychotherapy you weren't expecting it to link to poker so much and then it sounds like about three years in 
the kind of overlap started to become known. And what were some of the big ones that started to show up, if you're willing to share those, in terms of some of the insights you were having as a mm. poker player and how your kind of introspection was kind of showing those um, traits that you had at the time? Sure. So um, I think the to the first question you asked, which was, um, well, actually, firstly, when it kind of came up, yeah, like three years, three years in, I think it was, um, the main the main uh, overarching theme that's come forward and the one that I continue to explore in my therapy to today is like the, the role that being a professional poker plays in me, Ben, as an individual, like what does poker playing offer me? So I, I can just list a couple of things. What poker playing offers me poker playing offers me like, an environment where I can put my vulnerability to the side. It offers me an environment where I can be self-assured. It offers me an environment where I can feel like I know everything's laid out in front of me. Everything feels in control. Everything feels in place, even though obviously poker can be very swingy and all that kind of stuff. But even that in itself is quite structured and quite, you know, it's there. Um, so I think that if I, think of like knowing everything is laid out in front of me. And I just think about that as vulnerability. Uh, my vulnerability is kind of kept in check and I don't need to think about it. Whereas like in other aspects of my life, when I'm doing psychotherapy training, for example, you're really urged constantly to be checking in with yourself, to be checking in with what feelings you're having in, in a given moment. And the two are extremely contrasting and extremely different. Um, so I think that doing the training over, overall has taught me that I'm not just a poker player who kind of is logical and have all these labels where I'm like knowing what's going on. I like maths and I, I like theory and my, I'm more of a cognitive or a right brain or a left brain thinker and reminding me that I'm actually a whole with certain things that are more or less cut off to me through my lived experience and what makes me me basically. Yeah, yeah. If that's a bit of a rounded answer, I don't know if that yeah, makes sense. completely. Yeah. So as you've gone deeper into your psychotherapy, it sounds like you got to a point where you wanted to start teaching others and coaching other players with your psychotherapy knowledge. How on earth did you manage to balance psychotherapy, and how do you balance being a psychotherapist as a full-time poker player? Because I know how demanding the poker life is. Talk through how that. <laughs> this is this 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 is like the big question, actually. This is the big question and I still haven't got 100%, haven't got it figured out and I can share with what I know so far through whatever I've, I've talked about in the past. Like I started the training with the intention or at least three years in to quit playing poker and move into full-time psychotherapy. And I think that a large part of that was to do with psychotherapy offering me like a sense of belonging and a sense of being in a different way that poker has and done. Ironically, through my training and through understanding more of those vulnerabilities that I mentioned before, my love of poker has completely been rekindled and I love poker now more than ever. My motivation is at an all-time high. It has been for about three years, I would say. Like I, I wake up excited to play poker. Um, so the playing poker has never been an issue when I've been doing psychotherapy. Um, but the way in which I've kind of split things is that I see clients on Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, so originally I had therapy and supervision and clients on a Monday. I'd be at university on Wednesday and then I'd see clients on the Friday as well. And then I'd play poker on Tuesdays, Fridays, and maybe one day weekend. So I was part-time for about two or three years. 
now I work with poker players on, uh, sorry, non-poker players on a Monday, poker players on a Tuesday, and then play poker the rest of the week. Um, so the, but throughout the training, the balance was a lot harder because obviously my workload increased and I had so much to do, but, um, I don't know. I managed to make it, I just managed to make it work. Like both of them, I think the main thing was both of them felt like a priority and both of them are a priority. Um, and I've always been able to do things when they've been a priority as opposed to things that I haven't really wanted to do. Um, but I don't, I don't really know why if that makes yes. sense. <laughs> I'm interested to know, uh, why do you think the psychotherapy training uh, rekindled your passion for poker? What was it about going through this introspective work that allowed you to be more passionate about poker? Because you did plan on going a different route. So how did it come back together again? So <clears throat> when I was doing the training, as part of the training in the last three years, you volunteer, you have to be building up your client hours. So I I was working in a, like a, uh, a, what do you want to call it? Like a community service in, based in South London. Um, and I was volunteering, working with people with a range of issues, a mixture of like suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, loads of other mental health issues. And I really loved going there each week and working with them. And there was this really strange disparity between working with these people that are for the most part very not well off both emotionally both physically both uh and in terms of uh sociologically and uh and then going and sitting and playing poker that afternoon and playing for like however much money but for whatever reason it was always justifiable to me because i was volunteering um, and I was giving it for free, even though the goal was obviously to get my qualification. Then when I finished the training and I opened up my private practice, which is what I'm doing now and clients are paying, I've really, really struggled to take money and to feel okay about taking money for working with, working with people, uh, on their, on their mental health. And I know that's completely my own, my own stuff as nothing to do with anyone else. Um, but what I've come to realize is actually the poker playing for me is a way of funding more of a like a philanthropy, philanthropy uh, lifestyle where I can actually give something back and actually not be paid for it because I don't want to be paid for it. Um, and I know there's like a lot for me, there's a lot in there in that for me, because there's a lot of like kind of guilt about being a poker player, about taking money and the, the challenges I find with that and actually then being able to give back in some way seems to balance something out a bit more for me, at least at the moment. But again, it's a it's a process that I'm still working on that I don't really fully understand and um, trying to kind of come to grips with it. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to that a lot myself going from playing poker to coaching. One minute you're doing things for yourself for like kind of selfish reasons to make money. Then you have this kind of inkling that you want to help people and you gain expertise and you start helping people to solve their problems. Then there's a crossover point where you get good at what you do. You've got to start charging people, which isn't what you kind of got into it for. It becomes a kind of a contrasting moment for yourself where you've got to like reflect on what you're doing. And yeah, it was an obstacle for myself as well. When I started charging for coaching, I felt like in a conflict, not sure mm -hmm. why. I think I just hadn't reached a point where people paid me to do stuff. So yeah, it was a bit, I had to work through that as well when I uh, transitioned to the coaching. So a few follow-up questions as well. Sorry. So, could I ask, yeah, I just wanted to ask a question about that. So when you, so, 
there was a period where was there a period where you were doing both the things side by side and then you ended up leaving poker and then fully transitioning into the coaching or was it kind of quite a clean cut i went for a clean cut approach and my for six months i was kind of contemplating what to do and my kind of passion for poker was starting to fade and i remember like a lot of people kind of telling me what i should do next but i just had to figure out for myself and i basically went down a path of self-discovery and uh, not quite as deep as you with the psychotherapy, but figuring out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. It became very clear that I wanted to help people and I wanted to coach. And I was always quite good at it. Like mm. from my youth, I always did lots of sports coaching. Teachers always said I should be a teacher and kind of try to push me towards this um, kind of uh, path. And yeah, finally I decided I was going to start working with people. So I started doing lots of free coaching, lots of YouTube videos. I knew a lot of people in poker. So I was basically, a lot of people just wanted just to speak with me about poker stuff in, in, in the short term. And yeah, for myself, I just went through, uh, I just went all in on coaching. And I went, okay, I'm gonna figure it out. I charged free, free yeah. coaching, then super low coaching free prices. And then as I got more confidence, I got better results with players. I was like, all right, I'm getting good success now. Then as my confidence built, I was able to, to charge more. But yeah, it was definitely a process and it is a right. time. Yeah, that's a really interesting, it sounds very similar. Yeah. yeah. So I was gonna ask for yourself, if you yeah. could, give some kind of takeaways for poker players who might be interested in getting into psychotherapy and how it would benefit them as a poker player. I know a lot of players watching this or listening to this will be very motivated by how do I become a better poker player? And if psychotherapy could be a path towards that, I think it would interest them more. I know for yourself from uh, your questions that you answered before the podcast, it sounds like psychotherapy was a massive role in your overall success as a poker player. So what are some things like players maybe looking to get into psychotherapy? What are some of the steps they could take or what are some of the mm. things that, that could benefit them as a poker player? So do you mean uh, in terms of going into psychotherapy as a client or becoming a psychotherapist? As I'd say a as a client, going down to explore the route, like the self-exploration right. route. Sure. So I think well, what we were just talking about is quite interesting because you're saying you've gone down the coaching route and I've gone down the psychotherapy route and they are very much two branches off the same tree, really, uh, because ultimately we're there to aid someone's self-discovery for them to kind of make more sense of their life, to be able to find more fulfillment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I guess the first decision is kind of like whether or not the you would which branch kind of suits you. And I think there's a an idea that again, I want to speak from my own experience, poker players in general, including myself, uh, would prefer to have a more solution focused approach, which is more cognitive, which is more short, which is shorter term, which is kind of more linear, I guess. Um, and actually, I had CBT for anxiety when I was 17 years old, and it really helped at the, at the time that I had it. And then it kind of, for whatever reason, it kind of dissipated over time but kind of making that decision either solution focused or more long-term psychotherapy which is a disclaimer is that the psychotherapeutic approach approach isn't this linear process where you go for six or 12 sessions and you feel better every week a lot of the time it can be for a year it can be for six months it can be for three years it can be five years ten years and there will be as in life there will be, there will be uh, troughs and peaks around that therapeutic approach you're going to feel better in some aspects of your life you're going to uncover some vulnerability or some trauma if you want to call it that or uh, a wound that is going to hurt that is going to bring up feelings that feel new even though they're probably not new they probably were hidden somewhere in us in us um, um, 
so I think, yeah, that would be my first kind of point of kind of which way do you kind of want to go. And then on top of that, it would be just being prepared to really sit with the unknown, to sit with that you that you might be surprised that you don't know everything that makes you you, that you might be surprised, that you might feel afraid or vulnerable, but you also might feel enlightened and great, like a lot of joy over what you might discover. Um, but in terms of actually getting into it, you, well, that was one of your questions about kind of like what you, how you might actually go about doing it as well. Yeah. Um, I get a lot of messages from people asking like, kind of, uh, um, can you help refer me to a psychotherapist? Because I've so spoken to a therapist who says that poker is my issue. So there is also this other real, very real limitation that a lot of psychotherapists are quite old school and there are, there are, but there are younger, more uh, radical, more progressive psychotherapists who will hear and understand you from where you are coming from. But just for a general consensus, you just want to go to the UKCP website and directory, and you just want to basically find someone that you really warm to make sure you have pictures and images on to look at their face. And you basically just want to message a few of them, uh, have a single session with maybe three people, and then you want to kind of decide who you feel most warm to, and then, yeah, embark upon that kind of sitting with journey. And it's less about doing, and it's more about being, I think I, I would say, in, in that kind of uh, work. Yeah, great stuff. And yeah, I think what you said there was interesting about almost having to face some sides of yourself you've never seen before, so your insecurities, your belief systems, that are kind of below the surface, like they're there for all of us, but we haven't looked at them. And one of the things you said, which resonated with me, which I struggle with a lot, is that feeling of not knowing, like you don't know the answers and you don't know where it's gonna go. And like you said, as poker players, we're very linear thinkers, we're very cognitive based, we like to solve problems, we like to know strategies, and sometimes doing the kind of deep inner work, you don't know where it's gonna go. And that's quite, quite scary to go down that path. So mm. yeah, hats off to you for going down that route. And I know a lot of players who would go down the same route would get a lot of benefits. It's just a bit of a scary path to go into that unknown territory. But like I said, it's one of those things where it's not about finding answers. It's just a state of being and going internal and being open-minded, I guess would be, a, and mm. I think you've used vulnerability a few times as well, being vulnerable to, uh, to see what's below the surface and to explore that without judging yourself. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of that. There may not be answers immediately, but answers do come. That's the other thing is I, 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 answers 100% do come. Um, and once those answers are available to you, if we, if we kind of take the example of like, there are feelings beneath the surface that we don't know there, once they are known to us, we're able to like, if you imagine like, uh, like building blocks or something like that, we're able to hold that piece and then we're able to put it and integrate it back to like kind of the foundation that makes more sense that actually feels more solid beneath us and when we actually examine the foundation that makes us us that's actually when we can actually be ourselves we can be more authentic we can be more genuine and then like if you go even a, a level then higher than that things like tilt make more sense to us because we go oh this emotion is being evoked in this moment and actually like i've actually thought about this i've explored this and i've sat with this emotion before i'm able now able to sit with that emotion now i'm able to take a breath or i'm able to kind of reintegrate it quickly i'm able to put it back in the cabinet as opposed to it just like exploding in our yeah face. and that like awareness of yourself and the states you go through gives you that level of control like you said like you're tilting it's just like an emotional reaction to a stimulus 
But for a lot of people, that doesn't feel that way. It just feels like it's a visceral thing. This thing happened, therefore I feel this way. But by doing that kind of deep inner work, you can, like you said, put those kind of blocks in the right place in terms of it's just an experience I'm having. I felt this way before in the past. I can feel this way at the pocket tables. And yeah, that integration so you can actually work your way through it. So yeah, super powerful stuff. Uh, Rene, I know you've done a lot of mindset work and mm. you went deep into your own mind as well. Any follow-up questions based on what we talked about about psychotherapy? I mean, I don't even know where to start. It's a lot of interesting stuff. I'm a definitely, uh, I'm, I'm a very reflective person. So basically up until today, when I play, I always have pen paper with me. And whenever a thought comes up or whenever a feeling comes up, I'm like, okay, that's weird. Or at least not so. I write it down. I, I keep a report of everything, all my thoughts, all my, all my feelings. Also in daily life, if I overreact to a certain situation, I immediately reflect like, what was that? And it was funny that, that, that you mentioned that, that a lot of players, they don't, they're a bit afraid for what they might find out, where I experienced actually the complete opposite. I'm very curious, like, oh, wow, what, what would it be? Like, okay, maybe I can, I can resolve this. Maybe I can learn more about myself. Like, I think it's the association with the discovery that makes the difference between if you want to go there or if you don't want to go there. It's exactly what you said. A lot of people look yeah. for... Ben, I have this problem. Can you give me a short-term fix, right? You called it, I think, like they do it with their uh, uh, cognitive functions, right? They try to find ways around because their their goal is not to find resolution, right? They don't want to resolve it completely. They want to perform tomorrow and kick someone's ass at the poker yes. table. And indeed, yeah. opening a door where a lot of emotions come in, they get overwhelmed. They might have to take a break for three weeks because they're way too overwhelmed, right? It's like a wound being opened. Whereas maybe yeah. it's also because I've I've done a lot of work and I've never had that experience where something was that traumatizing for me that I didn't want to go there anymore. So probably this shaped my perception towards these kind of things as interesting as light because I guess I was luckily enough to don't have that much traumatic experiences. Mm. Well, in like therapy terms, like the way in which we refer to it is like trauma with a small T and trauma with a big T. So mm -hmm. like we've got traumas with a big T, which are like abuse, which are like parents dying when we're young, all that kind of stuff. And then we've got traumas with a small T, which we all have, which are like something as simple as lying in the crib crying and our mother or father doesn't come to us quickly enough or that we are really hungry and that we don't get fed quick enough. Like those kind of small traumas that get like locked in the body and that that's completely normal for us to, to feel and address. But the people that are afraid or maybe overwhelmed by kind of like coming into contact with either small traumas or big traumas, the, the, the fear isn't cognitive because we're talking, I mean, this is very kind of like psychodynamic theory, but like we're talking about like this infantile experience that is beyond words, it's pre-verbal, it's not able to be figured out. And that is where a lot of the fear comes from because it comes from a time and a place where we were unable to make sense of that fear or vulnerability um so yeah that's why it can be so scary for some people naturally to to go there i mean myself included it's it's it can be scary stuff to to come face to face with those parts of ourselves yeah no i i, I can definitely relate to that i also think in poker it's not the yeah it's not really the standard quote right i think they also there is a bad association with emotions yeah because i i thought something interesting that you said you feel the emotion and you just sit with it. Whereas I think a lot of poker players would prefer it to not be there or block it, right? 
So basically what you're saying, and maybe if you do therapy uh, sessions, you also learn them to help better understand that emotion, maybe to figure out where the emotion comes from. And that when the emotion comes up, that you're not surprised and overwhelmed by it, but that you're just like, okay, in sitting in that emotion. So it doesn't overtake you, right? I remember also in the, in, in, in the earlier stage of my career, I was completely into blocking it. Okay, no emotions. I'm a polar bear, you know, that was kind of my image. <laughs> now I have a Brazilian wife who didn't really appreciate that side of me. So I learned to sort of, okay, I cannot be a polar bear, but I can also not be too emotional. And ex- it's exactly what you mentioned of the letting the emotions in, but not letting it overwhelm you, right? Just being comfortable with and sitting with mm. the emotion. I think that's a very important skill that I think at some point of your career, you will learn, right? Because you can only find work workarounds up until a certain degree, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, but let's not let's not forget that we're in a we're in a, a work and environment where we're all men. We're all kind of middle class white men who are all going to be naturally predisposed to holding in their emotions and not expressing themselves, even more so in an environment like poker. Um, so that's like undeniable that that's going to be about and actually that what you were saying before about allowing the feelings in but then not becoming overwhelming the only way we can get to that point is if we have an environment where we are allowed we are permitted to be overwhelmed survive it and then kind of come back to the to to the to the to the environment that we feel comfortable in but until we've kind of allow ourselves to to feel overwhelmed or like we don't know what's going to happen we're not able to kind of like come back from it i think what do you think are some signs that players might experience which you would advise them to look inwards a little bit more and do some reflective work when your uh experiences at the tables are leaking into your personal uh relationships in life and i'm not talking about like not being able to wake up for like half an hour or an hour i'm talking like you notice your fuse is short with close ones, with family, with people in in the real world. As soon as like you're um, being impacted in your personal life, I mean, the the definition of addiction is that uh, addiction is kind of, um, it is an addictive process when your personal relationships are being impacted by the action of the the thing that you're taking or doing. And I think it's very, very similar. That's when when it's gone too far. yeah. So I think you're speaking to basically any poker player. I have the feeling at the moment that experienced this to some sort of degree, right? Well, this is it, isn't it? Like people burn out a lot. And I I'm this, I don't want to toot my own horn in this situation, but like I haven't felt like I've burnt out. Uh, I played consistently the days I play for nearly three years with taking breaks when I um, have breaks planned. I probably should take more breaks but without feeling actually burnt out. And that's because I always, always listen to how I feel outside of my poker session, in my poker session, as a way of uh, dictating how much I should or should not be playing. Um, And if I'm not playing, I'm studying and I'm still focused and I have my working hours. Whereas most of my poker friends are frequently burning themselves out, taking breaks, not listening when I say, listen, this is a what this is a sign for you to take a break. Like there's no harm in taking this, that, and the other. And people are burning out all the time. And if you're burning out, then something's being you've you've missed multiple warning signs up until that point, in yeah. my opinion. And then they're usually they probably just, you know, brush them away. It's like, yeah, but I'm a hard worker, you know. 
Emotions yes. are bad. I work hard. Oh, it's not going well. Hard work harder. Yeah. You know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these conditionings, especially as you said, right? Male conditionings. Yeah. If we're, and if poker, we're to... poker didn't help with that. That's for sure. Yeah. And like the, because poker takes so much out of you, which it does like emotionally, physically, your brain is being pushed. You're pushing yourself. Like you need to nourish your, you need to nourish yourself outside of poker. And by nourishment, I do mean things like sleep and food and exercise and breaks and that kind of thing. But like, I'm talking about like relational nourishment. I'm talking about a therapy session when you can kind of sit with yourself and you can, you can recharge your battery. I'm not talking about like going on holiday and drinking loads of beers and sitting on a beach for a week. Cause that's and forgetting, forgetting about it, right? Forgetting drinking it away. Exactly. That's important. Don't get me wrong. Like everyone needs that kind of downtime, but also that isn't nourishing the part of you that is getting burnt out. Yeah. I, I usually try to, when, when I talk to other players about this, I usually like to talk more in a sense of energy is like, okay. Yeah. When you're burning out, Poker is costing you too much energy, costing you more energy than it's giving back. And I thought there was an interesting point where you said that at some point you missed direction, right? You were very money driven. Poker was what you did because you had to make money to live. And you felt like you missed some direction. That's the point where if you play too much, you will burn out because it yeah. just costs you too much energy. And then you sort of, uh, you got more excited. And I thought an interesting point as well that you mentioned that people weren't reflecting on how am I supposed to feel how does poker is supposed to make me feel, right? What is the end goal here? The end goal is that we have, we feel good, right? On a day-to-day -day basis, as good as possible. And poker should help yeah. with that. So it also sounded that you, your, your passion for poker got reignited when you had more of a purpose, right? Poker yes. could help you feel good. You could actually get energy of poker. You could get excited of poker. And I always say that sometimes that journey might seem harder you know because it means studying more it means pushing yourself a little bit more but it's actually it will give you way more energy poker will become way more enjoyable than staying in your comfort zone and trying to grind it out because you have to pay your bills that's way yeah. more stressful yeah like in, in my opinion this is again my opinion i i don't fight poker the thing poker does it doesn't give me meaning like in life poker but poker but i've said and uh, as i mentioned before poker offers me something internally that i really need maybe i'm not going to need it forever but at this moment it's a bit of a crutch maybe for me to, to to satisfy whatever need i have but it's i find meaning i find meaning in the giving i find meaning in the other stuff and this is what i tell all of i try and tell my friends all the time who say that they hate poker that they don't want to play poker i was like fine you don't like poker you take a break quit do whatever you got to do but like use that opportunity to find something that you do find meaning in. And I guarantee to you, you're either going to say, I don't need poker anymore, or I now value poker for what it really is. I don't need to, it doesn't need to be anything more than it is apart from a vessel that means I'm able to do the stuff that, that I want to do. Like it's a privilege, right? To be a poker player, yeah. kind of basically what you're saying. I think I mentioned that That's in interesting. Instagram AMA the other day about, about, I wish I'd know someone asked the question, what would you like to have told your younger self as a poker player? And I said that being a poker player is a privilege, that it is not to be taken for granted, that we're, we're in the top 0.001% of privileged people as professional poker players and remind myself that I can do that alongside other stuff. That's very interesting because normally when people say to me that they hate poker, 
I try to say like, okay, you know, I usually ask, why did you start playing poker? What did you like about poker? And trying to kind of reconnect with that. But what you're actually saying is, what do you like outside of poker? And see that poker allows you to do that more often. So you yeah. kind of change your association with poker. You still, you know, poker might still not be the thing that you love doing anymore. But hey, you know, it 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 allows you for some financial freedom so you can do more of what you really love. That's, I think, is a really interesting, yeah. interesting perspective. I haven't thought about it that way. I usually look for yeah. trying to reignite the passion in poker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, I mean, it, it, it kind of is the yeah, I see what you mean. You kind of you kind of do it first, but if you do it after, then it kind of gives you a reason to do it. If you kind of go like, even if something as simple as like, I'm allowed to go on holiday whenever I want, like that's great. But like, similar to like, all, uh, if you have infinite money, you're not money's not going to bring you like happiness. So what is the thing that makes you happy? What can you work on? What projects can you do? What good can you do for people, your community? More, I, I, I tell you, like, what I, what I like to tell people is, like, just go volunteer. Go, go work in a bar one night a week. Go connect with people. Go, like, go work in a charity shop for, like, an afternoon on a Saturday. But sadly, like, a lot of people won't do that, which is fair enough. It's their decision. But, like, I think that once you start doing that stuff, you realize, actually, yeah, why not? Like, the, this poker thing is actually pretty good. Pretty good thing for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if people kind of bitch about you know they hate poker and you give them a solution that and then they don't do that then i think there is a problem right i mean <laughs> at least go go try stuff out right and see what works for you yeah do, do you you did also mention that after then you your passion for poker got reignited did you notice what are like, some of the things that you noticed in how you approach poker also technically that this journey that you were on in the psychotherapy helped you better understand the poke uh, the uh, the poker side technically was there were, there were there some things that ripped over to the technical side or like how you approach mm. poker i think probably Playing like more, more more than anything it was like the the amount of work that i put in to not just uh, like writing essays and kind of working towards something that i loved but like sitting in the therapy every week the amount of time that i put into that and the commitment that i put into that uh really like studying poker and playing poker feels like literally like one or 2% of how difficult it was and is to be with all of that other stuff, the feeling stuff, the theoretical stuff, the writing, the, the going to seminars, all of that kind of stuff. It completely like six hours in training for one day, I would come back and I'd be absolutely like an emotionally flawed wreck for like the whole night, I'd sleep for like 12 hours not because I was depressed or like anxious or any of this kind of stuff, but just because it was so heavy and hard work that when it comes to poker, a pattern that brings me like uh, a satisfaction and joy, it just felt so easy. It just felt so easy to sit down for two hours. It's my own time. I'm in my own house. I've got a coffee next to me. I don't have to answer to anyone. Like, like how incredible is that? You know, that's, power that's of perspective the right there. <laughs> the contrast was just magnificent. Yeah, um, and that's coming from someone who's like a really privileged person. Like I've, I've had privilege my whole life, but going into to those situations where you're working really hard, it's like, yeah, it's, it's so easy. I guess it also frees up a lot of space in your brain, right? People are often too too occupied with poker, and this is probably also when it starts to infect your relationships around you. Then just you know taking more more breaks, or indeed volunteering doing other things, putting your brain into other things, it also opens up a lot of space that actually when you go back to poker, 
you will actually see stuff that you yeah. didn't see before because you now actually have some room in your, in your brain again that actually can excite you. Oh, wow, I'm actually making progress again. Hey, I didn't see that before. So yeah. often people think like, okay, I need to reach more success. I want to work more, but it's actually, you know, maybe a little bit less is better for you. Yeah, and I, I, want, I want to just like kind of uh, caveat the fact that you and I, for example, um, are in a position where we can say stuff like this because do you not remember, and also Adam, yeah, I'm sure you're the same, like at the beginning of your career, how much how much did you eat, sleep, dream poker, getting into poker? It was like 24-7, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you think do you think a phase like that is necessary? This is it. I, I, I don't know a single player who wasn't obsessed at the beginning of their career because you can't you can't make it in poker if unless you're obsessed, in my opinion. And now we all advise take it easy, sort of. I guess so it's so exactly. it's a phase this in your career. <laughs> Yeah. Also, also usually that, you're right? younger then, than right. You're like in your twenties. You are in general have way more energy. I think you can get away with it a little bit, a little bit more. But it's yeah. not the sustainable but, solution. No, but the thing is though, I feel like I have way more energy now for poker than I ever did. I, I honestly, I honestly do. I wake up, I wake up on a on a Wednesday morning after of seeing clients, and I'm like, today's a poker. Today I'm going to study from ten till twelve with my study partner, and I'm going to grind a session. I'm going to go bouldering, then I'm going to grind another session. Then I'm gonna make me my girlfriend dinner, and it's just like exciting the idea that I get that time to myself. So, I do think that there's there's obviously a distinction to be drawn that people you do need to work very hard to be successful in poker, but that doesn't mean that you don't need to sleep. It doesn't mean you don't need to do other things. It doesn't mean you don't need to kind of build build other things around poker as well. It also helps you. It's what you also refer to, right? You're talking about there's Ben and Babit and there's Ben, right? So if Ben and Babit <laughs> is not doing so well, that doesn't mean that Ben has to do badly as well, right? You sort of create two lives. Mm. So it's the one one doesn't influence the other as much anymore. Well, yeah. And then also to have relationships around you that you're able to be both of those people and you're going to be able to say to your partner or, or like parent or friend or whatever, like I'm actually having a really hard time and... I'm not going to sit here and complain about bad beats and how bad I run all the time, but I'm going to share that actually I feel pretty shit about how things are going. Can you hold some of this with me? Can you experience some of that with me? And can you tell me it's going to be okay? Because we need that, right? Because in poker, you tell your other poker friends that, and they're just going to say, oh, I'll do a sweat with you. Make sure you're studying. Um, make sure yeah. that you're taking a break every hour. Make sure you've got a sip of water. Do some meditation. Like great but like where's the human contact all, that says like all practical struggling? stuff right yeah they're not going in but this i think it's also because poker players they make vocal what's the problem the problem is i had a lot of bad beats today they're not saying you know they're not, they're not giving a, a very deep answer in terms of what they're experiencing emotionally so mm -hmm. then i guess also the the response is also different I me mean, I, you learn this uh in in like long-term relationship for example with me and my wife if you want to have good communication, you need to learn to communicate from a point of what you're feeling, right? Uh, yeah. Not people often get angry at each other, but they're often sad, for example. So it's better to try to communicate. Listen, I'm sad for these reasons instead of communicating that you're angry about the fact that you mm. got a lot of bad beats today. That that's that leads to a way better conversation. And then the other person yeah. that you're having this conversation with is also like, oh, this is actually an interesting conversation instead of, oh, here you have another crybaby bitching about bad beats all the time, you know? 
Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I sometimes I leave my office going to the kitchen and I just go like to my girlfriend, like I got bad beat with aces three times and I'm down 10K. And she's like, oh no, <laughs> like that happens as well sometimes. So it's not about just not just not having one or the other. It's about having like a an, uh, uh, an eclectic one. Yeah. Also thought it was interesting. You mentioned so that you, I think it was on Monday, you work with non-poker players and on Tuesday with poker players. Yeah. Do you... Do you notice that there are certain things that are specific problems that poker players have instead of, I wanted to say normal, other normal people, but people are not poker players, you know? Yeah. Are they so, like, so I assume certain things are universal and certain things are specific to poker players. Yeah. I also need to be a little bit careful about talking about clients and their kind of issues, but like in terms of overall, generally, I think that yeah. there are some themes with, with poker players. And I do think, uh, that there is a lot of kind of oh, what's the word um uh, like displacement um like poker players live around the world in a lot of different places and i think i've noticed a bit of a kind of a i don't know patterns maybe fair or not but there's certainly the the difficulty to come into contact with feeling and i can say that because i'm a poker player who really struggled to come into contact with feeling for a lot large part of my life and only recently have i been able to as i said but also a lot of kind of um, uh, toxicity in family uh, dynamics, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this kind of um, the poker player feeling like they kind of need to be all self-sustaining, not relying on anyone, that no one's going to be there for them but them, just themselves. They can only rely on themselves. Um, and most of the time that's to do with yeah like relationships not being great at home i would say and is it then also cause to maybe the relationships around poker players maybe some relationships around them don't really still accept the fact that they're a poker player or they're not as supportive and then maybe you feel more of the need to prove that you know, because a lot of play all of times when you say I'm gonna become a professional poker player, it's not like everyone is around you like, hey, yeah, great idea, go do yeah. that, go gamble for, <laughs> exactly. for a living. No, that's usually not what you get. Are you sure? So I think a yeah. lot of poker players also that I spoke to they have a certain consciously or consciously have a certain need to prove them themselves and to kind of uh, you know show that they made the correct decision, which puts extra pressure on the player. Totally, hundred percent. And I think that's a large part of the reason why a lot of poker players won't ask for help uh emotionally or psychologically because of that self-sustaining attitude which again isn't just um uh just for poker players it's for for a lot of people but particularly in the in the poker playing world for sure and what i will say so i i don't know if i, I don't know if i made this clear before i didn't think i did basically i started to try and do mental game coaching adam um i was thinking about doing it and i kind of put together this kind of i worked with my supervisor to really think about how i could bring a therapeutic slash mental game approach and it basically like it didn't really work for me and i found it quite difficult to kind of bridge this this weird thing between the two and my sessions ended up invariably after three or four sessions turning into psychotherapy so actually the things that they kind of came in wanting to work with on like a kind of a like i want to be able to grind more my motivation is low and that kind of stuff ultimately came down to talking about like them, their relationships, their lived experience, who they are and all that kind of stuff. 
to the point where now I don't work with poker players in the mental game capacity. All my poker players who were mental game clients are now psychotherapy clients. So I've decided to stop doing the, the mental game coaching side of things. It's quite funny how it kind of went like that. Yeah, that's super interesting actually, because I when I started going into working with poker players, I came from a performance side because I'm with a background in sports science and I'm quite a kind of into good habits and routines mm. and how to optimize living. And as I, again, as I got into coaching the same as you, I realized, wait a second, there's a lot of deeper problems that aren't, can't be solved on this kind of surface level stuff. So that got me deep into the mind. And I think mental game and therapy, there's like kind of a, there's a crossover somewhere on those lines when you go deeper and deeper into the, the mental work. So uh, yeah, I can relate to that. And for myself, I went from performance deeper into mindset. And even now I'm going deeper and deeper into uh, psychology and belief systems and kind of subconscious programs that hold people back, so, uh, which is your nice. kind of bread and butter. So uh, yeah, I think it's one of those things when you actually uh, so you try to help, yeah. help people, it comes to a point where there's a core root that needs to be addressed. And the deeper you go with the person, the more you find those roots are quite common and they can't be avoided. So if, we, if you don't dig deep enough, you can cover up on the surface all you want. You can you try and have a nice lifestyle on the surface these things underneath need to be solved. So uh, as you start to help people solve those problems, very yeah. often it does lead into a therapy-based discussion or at least exploring some of the deeper parts which they, they haven't explored before. Yeah, totally. Yeah, mm. yeah I very definitely associate with that. I mean, I, I've never, I, I don't call myself a, a mental game coach, but obviously I have quite a lot of experience. I've coached a lot of players and I've talked with a lot of players and it's indeed like it basically, you have, sort of easy problems to fix, but then problems get deeper and the issue doesn't get resolved. I've had this with many students of mine as well. And then you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And at some point, indeed, like you have to go to past. And usually I then refer them to other people because yeah. I don't feel like I'm the right person to talk to. I do feel like I have a good understanding and I could help, but I just don't feel like it's my place per se. I don't feel that comfortable uh, with it and I don't want to say the wrong things uh, in that area. But indeed, at some point, you just have to dig deeper if I have a student yeah. who, who I have hand history sessions with and every time he just makes the same punts and then literally explains to me, yeah, I don't know why I do this. Then at some point, you know, we reach the point like, okay, I, I cannot help you anymore on a technical <laughs> side, right? Yeah. Uh, then, I, then, I, then I do ask that, okay, what do you feel at that moment? Yeah, I'm very angry. Blah, blah. And, you know, mm. but then to dig deeper, that's at some point you need it in my opinion. You can, you can, yeah. you can do quick fixes. You can find ways around it. But if you really want to have a good feeling and get a good feeling out of playing poker it's way better to look for long-term resolution mm. i think a lot of these issues no i definitely agree and actually that's i think you perfectly highlighted the whole point it's like there's a there's a balance between when something goes from advice into something else and there's only so much advice you can give and i think that my entire training has i've never been taught or supported in giving advice my whole thing is kind of being able to deepen exploration and no advice giving whatsoever. So mental game coaching was really challenging for me because I knew I needed to be able to share my experience as a poker player and give some advice, but also I find it quite disconcerting giving advice um, unless it's to a friend or something like that because there's no there's nothing at stake if it's to a friend really. Also, I guess it didn't satisfy you. You were there to really help people and you saw there were deeper issues. You're like, mm, but I'm a mental game coach. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a psychotherapist. Yeah. But psychotherapy would now really help him. But sometimes also, I guess, you don't want to open something up if someone's goal is this. And I want to, let's say, for example, last three months, Supernova Elite. Let's pretend it still existed. 
you I probably don't want to start psychotherapy at that point, right? You just want to go to the mental game coach and try to find some quick fixes to reach uh, the yeah. supernova lead. So maybe some players would also come to, to you and they didn't, they don't actually want the long-term fix. They don't want you to open up a bunch of stuff because they need to perform yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's another really good point that like it, to Adam's question earlier, if you're going into psychotherapy, you need to maybe be prepared that you're going to feel worse and therefore unable to play poker for a period of time. And that might be part of the process. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition, where me and Adam have created our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker. After having reached high stakes poker ourselves, we tested out this philosophy on our CFP students, which saw them rise through the ranks and double their win rate. We then took the best knowledge of that CFP program and turned it into the mechanics of poker so you can have that high quality content without the long-term commitment and often hefty price that comes with a CFP program. Now I will be teaching you the technical side of how poker really works, how to think about the game and how to consistently get better. And Adam focuses on the mindset and performance skills you need to know in order to convert all that technical poker knowledge into more consistent profits at the table. Now this program is high level. It's made for professional poker players who have the ambition to break free from mid stakes and move up to high stakes poker. So if you're ambitious about your poker goals, go over to pokerambition.com for more information. And there you can also find a free one hour demo of everything that is inside the program. If you have any further questions, don't hesitate to reach out. But without further ado, let's get back to more goodness in this episode. Yeah, you have to kind of accept that. I want to go back a little bit to, to, to a bit more the technical side. I heard you talk about... Uh, uh, you sneaked in like, oh, I study between 10 and 12 and then I go playing. <laughs> yeah. I, I just followed that. And also you, you, you talked before about that you had a close peer group. Okay. And now you also refer to you're doing it with your study buddy. Mm. How big of an impact has that have? And how does your current improving in poker, technically speaking, routine kind of look like? Can you take us through that? Yeah. So, um, I think I mentioned it a little bit before, but my my study early on in my career was just like leeching information off people who are better than me, who understood the game better than me. And there's, I don't think there's any way getting around that. That was a reality. Um, and then uh, I got better. And then I think I just, we I continued to talk to people about Strat who were better than me. I then got Pyrosolver. I then had to ask people who were better than me to show me how to use it. And then in more recent times, my study partner is, uh, you know, Clancy. Mm-hmm. You know, Clancy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's my study partner. And we've been studying together for, I think, nearly two years now. And we have like a routine where we study every Wednesday and every Friday from like 10 till 1 or 10 till 12. Um, mm -hmm. And we have like thematic study where we do topics and like different, ver like very rarely will we do like a hand history review. We'll usually be like deep diving into Pyo and kind of really kind of like coming to grips with different concepts. Um, but again, Clancy is someone who is better than me at poker, better than me theoretically. Um, he understands the game a lot more. And we do have a very, we're, we're mates like as well, like it's not like a, just a study relationship, but being able to kind of bounce my kind of knowledge and understanding of poker as well as his theoretical understanding is like form this really, really just um, 
helpful environment where we're both learning like extreme amounts for over like over the past couple of years. Um, but it's always been with people who are better than me, actually, always, always. And it's very deliberate, right? You said you have a strict, it's that day you already kind of, before you go in, it's not like, hey, Clenty, what's up? You know, what should we talk yeah. about today? It's, it, I imagine it's a little bit more structured. You guys know what's going to be discussed. Yeah, always, always. And we have we have like a list of topics that we're we, we're intending on working through over the months or even the years to come. Um, and we've been like we spent like a whole long period on just one situation, like maybe like four or five months every twice a week. We were studying one scenario that comes up frequently. Um, mm -hmm. And now, like, that's the strongest part of my game. So like there's been a direct correlation between what we studied and actually being able to kind of implement it and actually a big shout out to him because I know one of the things on the questionnaire that we talked about before were like kind of goals in poker and that kind of thing. And just to touch on it a little bit, he's been, like when I started, started playing with him, I've been playing, I was playing 500 Zoom once we started studying like a couple of years ago. And it's only been in the past year or so where he's really made me believe and pushed me, probably given me my own mental game coaching in some kind of way that actually I can aspire to be much better. I can aspire to play high stakes, that I can aspire to be a much better player than I am and actually battle with people who are who I see as being a lot better than me. Um, and that's actually what's been happening. So I've been actually able to move up and that's without that relationship, I would have been playing 500 and yeah, definitely not playing these reg tables and high stakes. So this seems to be a theme, right? Also, you know, you mentioned all the way in the beginning, you moving with your mates in London. Uh, so you're like a sponge. You, you, you soak in the information from people around you. You're very, sponge, you're very good at this. But nice I, 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 mean, I imagine leech. that, sorry? A sponge is a nice word for a leech, I think. But yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine like you, you kind of maybe, maybe um, uh, uh, selling yourself short here because obviously <laughs> there's a reason why Clenty studies with you, right? What, what do you think? that are like your strengths when it comes down to the technical side of the game that Clenty is interested in. I mean, I'm sure Clenty, <laughs> you know, if Clenty wants to do a two hour study session with me every week, I'm, I'm open to that. You know, he can call me as well, but he goes too. <laughs> so, um, so like this all comes from my blog, all, all pretty much nearly all of my relationships in poker come from my blog that weren't my initial friendship group. So I had a lot of people over the years, just talk to me, reach out to me. Uh, we did like London meetups, we made Skype groups, we made Discord groups. I think the one thing I will say is that like, yes, I have like uh, had people who are better than me teach me, but I've been very forthcoming with giving information like, you know, Easty in his Discord, we kind of like try and talk about hands and like just generally trying to kind of pay that forward as much as possible. Um, but with Clancy, he basically messaged me, I think it must have been in about 2017, something like that. And he was playing, I think, maybe 100 or 200. And he just, we got talking a little bit. And then as Pio kind of became more of a thing, and he, he's very uh, theory-oriented. He's very, very good with Pio and makes a lot of content for Runner Wants and stuff. As he got more interested in the theory side and as poker moved into a more theoretical, theoretically-based game, I think we did like a random study one time. I, it's funny, I can't even remember the start. He actually remembers when it started, but I can't exactly remember now. And it just became like, oh, do you want to do one next week? I was like, yeah, all right, sure. And at the time, it was just a hand review. He was playing probably some 200, I was playing some 500. Um, and we were just kind of making it up as we went along. 
And then I think he really, really went for it. He started coaching and he started kind of studying more and he just became like a bit of a wizard with the whole thing. Um, and then the study moved into more kind of thematic and consistent studies. Uh, and now it kind of just went, goes without saying. So yeah, that's how we met. Again, it's quite interesting, right? People that would now look at it, oh, look at Ben, you know, he's so lucky that he has like an end boss, like Clenty studying with him. But actually when you started, it was actually you who were quote, quote, you know, better or at least higher in, in stakes than Clenty. So basically, I think, I think, that, I think that's right. I'm not hundred percent sure, but yeah. So you gave, and, and this is, this is what I experienced. For example, uh, I'm sure you played with the uh, poker Kluka when me and Poker yeah. Kluka started to work together. I was already playing high six and he was still playing 500 NL Zoom, 200 NL Zoom. I helped him. Yeah. You know, nah, we all know where he is yeah. now. And now I can <laughs> help. Insane, yeah. He can help me again, right? And I've seen this through. You, you, you sometimes need to invest a little bit in certain relationship. In the beginning, you're going to be giving a lot. But in the end, that you, you build this community, which mm. is very important. If I have a question now, I, I don't know how many smart minds I can ask a question where I get a good answer from. Yeah. It's insane. It's like true. I have no, it's true, yeah. no matter where I am in poker, I'm sure I can find the answer in some of my contacts. Mm. Right. And this yeah. is exactly what you mentioned, how important the, the, the support group is around that from Always. an emotional Always, side, yeah. from a technical side, from just experience, maybe even after poker, right? You also mentioned some friends of you are now retired. Maybe if you want to retire, you know, ask them for advice. Uh, I think yeah. this is very important to surround yourself with, with, with the right players. Agreed. From what I recall, Adam, you've had similar experience sharing grind houses, villas, I should say, in Bali with other poker players trying to develop your career. Yeah, well, villa sounds glamorous, but basically it's just a place to live, Germany and uh, Thailand or Bali. Uh, we call it the villa rather than a house because it's got a nice pool. But yeah, when I started poker as well, I got quite lucky to uh, go with two friends from university. Um, we got a place in Bali originally. Oh, sorry, Thailand was our first stop in Phuket. Um, we basically just clubbed our money together, had a little bit of bankroll, and quite similar to Ben, like this not really knowing what you're doing, but being in kind of a supportive group. I'm just trying to figure out this poker problem or game together. And I think like any one of us had done it by ourselves, it would have been complete failure. In, in all honesty, I was kind of in it for the team environment, being part of a little group and us against the world mentality, trying to figure out this card game whilst the rest of the world thought you were crazy. Um, so yeah, I think having that supportive network around you, especially early is huge. And then as you get further developed, it becomes important for different reasons for like your continued development. So uh, initial core support group to uh, almost support the dream and keep you going. And then as you get more developed, like Ben's even experiencing now, someone to show you a next level to go to a role model or someone to push you that other step. Because I think as a poker player, we always get to a point where we just stop. We stop ourselves just based on our own limitations, our own belief systems, our identity. We get to a point where it feels good enough. And sometimes it takes that one person in your group to go, uh, why stop here? Why not go further? And you're like, oh, never thought of it. So uh, yeah, it sounds like I know, Brenda, you've had people in your circle like that. I don't know, Ben, you have as well. So uh, yeah, I think it's so, so important to have that, that support group. So I want to ask you a question, Ben. Uh, what was poker like before mm. learning psychotherapy compared to poker playing after in terms of like a day-to-day -day grind and what, what it feels like to be a poker player after you've uh, went through your psychotherapy training? So the, the two words that come to mind is before psychotherapy training, I was a recreational and unprofessional. And I would say that post psychotherapy, I feel like a, 
a true professional. <laughs> and I think before it was grinding way too late and uh, not consistent hours. It was being sloppy with sleep, with diet, with breaks. I would take uh, like a big, 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 big thing for a long time was I would have, I suffered massively from winner's tilt. So uh, if I was uh, winning, but like the opposite to what I think it normally is described as, if I was winning, I would just grind all the time. I would just like be riding, think have this fallacy of riding some kind of wave, keep grinding. Uh, when I went on upswings, I'd be grinding, grinding, grinding. As soon as I started losing, I would just not play. And sometimes I would like not play, I'd get smashed, lose like 20 bones or whatever, uh, take like three days off, come back, lose a few bones, take a week off, come back. And until like I had a winning session, which could be over like a six week period, uh, because I had only played five times, um i wouldn't i wouldn't play basically it was just so stupid so so like unprofessional um and then kind of yeah similar to the points that we've kind of brought in just the idea of like my my um my appreciation for the freedom of poker and what it offers me and all that kind of stuff uh now it looks like so as i said clients mondays clients tuesdays wednesday uh thursday Friday and either Friday or Saturday night I grind. So I always grind either a Friday or Saturday and then spend the other night with my girlfriend usually. Uh, so we always try and kind of like have something booked in either on the Friday or Saturday to do something together. And then Sunday I'll grind some of the day, but not all day. And then Mondays, I think I haven't grinded a Monday for about six years. I've had a Monday off every single every single week. Amazing. Um, and a Tuesday, majority have those off, but sometimes grind a bit in the yeah. Day. So it's very like very uh it sounds regimented and it sounds a bit kind of like forced but it's really flexible and and amongst that i'm socializing i'm going doing as a bouldering I'm, i climb a lot with friends and that kind of thing like i'm doing a lot of other stuff but i'm also playing my poker hours as like a semi-part-time yeah. player it sounds very balanced but it also sounds very well designed like you designed every day in alignment with your preferences what gives you meaning what gives you energy what's enjoyable so uh, yeah, I think a lot of people could take um, some inspiration from that. Like, obviously, at certain points of your career, mm. it is hustle mode, pay the bills, that kind of stuff. But the end goal is to get to a point where you design your life. And I think with your kind of psychotherapy background, you're at that stage now where you're super grateful for the life you have, and you're able to create a life in alignment with the meaningful things for you. So, yeah, great work as well on taking that one day off, that kind of disciplined one day. I think it's one of those things as poker players, mm. a lot of players I've worked with, they struggle to take time off, and especially consistently, and it's almost this kind of, yeah. oh, I know I should take time off, but there's like a conflict there, which it's strange because it should never be really like taking a day off. It's not the end of the world. It's actually a beneficial thing for almost everyone. So yeah, I think like locking in that one day of the week off, I think a lot of poker players could like learn from that and apply it themselves as well. Yeah. And actually, like, I think to those people that you just spoke about, how often do they how often do they burn out how often do they take that week off the whole week off or two weeks off and actually if you take 14 days off you've actually you've you've wasted maybe the equivalent of 14 weeks of grinding because you could have taken one day off each week <laughs> and then actually have played like 25% more hands if you kept that consistency up so it's the short term relief over the long term benefit yeah. i guess yeah i think people don't realize that when you don't like look after yourself in the short term like you are on path to some sort of burnout and yeah, I can speak of like a lot of players I've worked with and especially the, the hardworking, ambitious, go-getter personalities, they will almost have like these kind of weeks where they kind of rest 
in burnout, but they wouldn't even acknowledge it as burning out. It was almost just like part of their two month uh, kind of schedule. Oh yeah, grind it crazy, cycle, cycle. Yeah. and then they recover and get back to it. But they wouldn't live in the patterns of just like a, a habitual thing. But like you said, taking that one day off a week can often save you a lot of time in the long term. And I can see by your relationship with poker has actually grown stronger by having like more bricks, like less like hardcore grinding, less that mm. rake back grinding mentality. You enjoy the game more. I'm sure as a byproduct, you're enjoying the game more. Your performance is better. Your win rate's better. I'm sure you're a better person to be around for your partner. Yeah. I'm sure like everything in your life magnifies because your relationship with poker is healthy. So uh, yeah, some, some great takeaways there from you. And it's, it's actually funny when, like, cause at the end of the years, I always post my results in my blog, as I said, and people always comment every single year on, they don't know, they're like, they're like, have you played so many hands? And, uh, cause like most of the time I play more hands than most of the people who are playing actually full time. Um, and, and, uh, but when I tell you like, guys, I'm taking Monday off and I'm only grinding like three or four hours, four days a week, but I'm always doing it. It's not like that much, right? If it's not really, it doesn't really, it's not really that much, but when you have everything in place, it just, it, you just, your consistency, just that your hands and consistency just become, they just fall into place. I think that's not to say that there won't be times where I will burn out for whatever reason. And I'm sure that that is going to happen at some point and, and might do. And, and if that happens, it happens and breaks are taking weeks off and months off are important if you need to. So just like, there's no shame in taking a month off if you have to take a month off. Yeah, absolutely. Know? So I want to segue into some more random questions, but things I've been curious about as I've been speaking. Uh, one of them is, what are some of the books that have impacted your life the most? It could be in terms of your own development, working on yourself. Yeah. It could be some of your favorite books that you've found enjoyable, all that yeah, you've read recently. Anything that comes to mind in terms of impactful books? Um, so I'm really bad for reading any, any sort of fiction. Um, and I'm always, uh, this is something that I would like to work on a bit more. I always read to learn and all the reading I do is, is honestly about psychology and psychotherapy. I don't, I've never read, um, a, like a self-help book or anything like that. Um, it's more like theory, like quite dense, uh, psychodynamic theory or relation, like modern relational theory. Um, I guess the number one that helped me understand like this whole thing of being a poker player and being an adult is completely connected to every other day that has come before that day. So your whole entire life is a book by um, Lavinia Gomez and it's called object, it's like just called object relations theory and object relations theory is just quite simply that we are a product of the our early relationships. We are a product of uh, how well we are handled as well as um, held in mind, held and held in mind from our caregivers and the impact that it has. And also that there are ways to replenish those relationships that weren't perfect for us as, as, young, as young children. Uh, I would say that's probably my number one, my number one book. And I read that in my first year of training um, about, yeah. Yeah, seven years nice, ago. very nice. Yeah. Uh, other than that, the other books I've read are just like very kind of like probably like childish books from when I was yeah, younger. Yes, yeah. I can relate to the. I wouldn't say inspiration. Yeah, I can relate to the habit of only reading to learn as well. I think that's a bit of a leak of mine where every time I'm trying to pick up a book, it's always like a productivity moment. My girlfriend's always like, just unwind and I'll pick up a book and start reading. But I'm always really like trying to get information and learn something. <laughs> but I think it's a good trade overall, but it could be balanced better mm -hmm. with some nonfiction reading to uh, yeah, just let the mind drift in, take in some of the information. I think that, yeah, the last fiction book I tried to read was, um, uh, was it World War Z? 
uh, my girlfriend had it and I was just like she was like similar to me like you just like when you just read something to wind down you don't need to either be like learning something it was during when I was writing my dissertation and uh and I started reading it and I kind of read like half of it and I was just like I'm just so unthrilled mm. by this like <laughs> if I'm gonna do this I'll watch a movie or something like that it's my I don't know it seems a bit of a shame but yeah that was my yeah reference. yeah so you've been playing podcast for reading is not your form of relaxation mm. say that again reading is not your form of relaxation then no it's not my form of relaxation yeah. walking going for walks being able to not have any music in letting my my mind just kind of go where it needs to go that's my definite uh that version of relaxation yeah i'm a big fan of that as well walks for yeah. the mind just let the mind drift and wander off and whatever comes up comes up so you've been playing poker 12 years now and it sounds like your relationship and enjoyment with poker is probably healthier and better than ever how could how is your how would you say your relationship has changed with poker come from that kids getting into poker with your friends in london compared to where you are now what's the kind of the biggest kind of shift in your relationship with the game? Um, that's a really good question. It's a really difficult question to ask, to answer, sorry. Um, so how has my relationship to poker changed since I was, since I was younger? I think it's just a lot healthier than it was. And it's a lot more, it's a lot less, uh, uh, it's a more, lot more directional. I think I have a lot more direction for why I'm doing it, what I'm doing it for. Um, I think I'm yeah, just a lot more professional towards it. Um, I think probably the main thing is that like poker before filled uh, filled a. I'm gonna want for a better word filled a void that needed filling by something, and whether or not that was a video game, whether or not that was doing something, or whether or not that was playing poker. But poker was the thing that took precedent over everything else. I think I'm a lot more uh, understanding of what that void is and what is the filling of that void, what it's, what purpose it serves. Um, and that all goes back to what we talked about earlier, the idea of vulnerability and, and other things that may be simmering below the surface. Yeah. It's now you're a lot more mindful of what you're doing with poker. Your relationship with poker overall is very like understood. It sounds like you know why you're doing poker to a degree. You might not know exact some of the deep rooted reasons, but you're very aware of why you're doing it. Mm. And if you wanted to do other things, you could. So yeah, it sounds like a, a good evolution as a person, as well as a poker player that you've, you've went through. So Rene, you got any questions that you'd like to, yeah. to ask Ben? Yeah. Any questions that we haven't covered, any topics that, that have been on your mind the last few minutes? Uh, he, he mentioned uh, something about Winner's Tilt, which <laughs> yeah. where he actually had the opposite effect of, yeah, what I think most people indeed understand by Winner's Tilt. Uh, I win a tilt by quitting sessions early. It's like I come to a session to kind of prove that I'm going to win or that I'm good enough. And then, you know, if I'm up three buy-ins, it's like there's no more upside in continuing <laughs> grinding. I can only lose it back. So then I quit. I've done this so many times, man. Entering battles, three-handed, up three buy-ins. Okay, I quit. You know, I beat them. Why, mm. why risk it? And especially I, I was not necessarily that money-driven. Uh, so I didn't see... Uh, a reason to continue basically and i was curious like what are some bad habits that you still have up until today that you know you think you shouldn't but you still it still sometimes comes back mm. hmm. there definitely are some let me just think for a second one that comes to mind is 
carrying on playing if I'm winning. Um, and also if I do check my graph mid session, which I sometimes do, if I'm like down a little bit, I might carry on to try get out of it. Even if I'm down like, I don't know, 20 big blinds or 50 big blinds. I have to say though, this happens extremely rarely. And actually, usually the reason, the reason that it's happening is because something else is going on in my life where I'm trying to kind of like that that needs ironing out and I'm trying to iron it out by putting it into this thing which is getting out of the hole that's usually what the awareness of my how my awareness comes into the situation yeah that's pretty interesting so it's like you kind of want okay that was Adam bye bye Adam we have, we have a disconnection bye Adam we have yeah <laughs> okay I don't know, really know what happened but apparently he disconnected that's okay all right we, we can just continue I'm sure he can go back it's the same link sure, sure. yeah yeah um now I lost my train of thought you were talking about the the winner's tilt so like if something it's still actually a form of it's actually still a form of winner's tilt right a little bit but it was interesting because you said let's say for example I don't feel satisfied with something else in my life, I need that session to be a win in order to to get that satisfaction. That's kind of what yeah. you're describing. Did, did I understand that? Yeah, other, uh, yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I might feel like there is another satisfaction stacked on top of the original satisfaction, and now I have two dissatisfactions. I don't know if it's exactly as linear as that, but like there's mm -hmm. something to be said for um, you go into a poker session with all the feelings that you're carrying in. And sometimes playing poker, whether or not it means you've tilted a little bit or whether or not it means you're trying to kind of alleviate a certain feeling, it's kind of being replayed and replayed out, I think, in a sense, sometimes. Yeah, it's like you go in unconsciously wanting to get something out of it. Yeah, like for you, yours is more conscious. You say, I want to go into the session. I want to win. I want to have that feeling of winning and then I'm going to get out of there. It might be yeah. you might have gone into that session not knowing that you needed that win. And then it might become apparent just by how you're acting at the table maybe you're through that yeah it's about how you're acting when you or win or lose in my case quitting early like now exactly. i understand what what was going on and, and, and <laughs> back in that time i didn't understand it but not but now by reflecting i do understand what's going on if you then notice yeah. that you're down do you notice technically speaking that you start to do things different for example if i'm down i could maybe try to force things a little bit more I like, I probably do, um, but I like to think that I'm pretty disciplined with my using my RNG and using ranges correctly and that kind of thing. Like I don't deviate that kind of stuff. I, I very much, I'm quite good at kind of uh, leaving to the side and noticing, noticing the desire without acting on the impulse, without being impulsive. Having this understanding of, for example, how emotions could influence your playing style technically, is this also a reason why you already mentioned you decide to use a very GTO-oriented approach with RNGs because you're very aware of certain biases that can come in, emotional states that could influence the decision. Is this one of the reasons why you try to approach poker in that way? Not so much, actually. I think I try and play that approach because I think it's the highest EV when you're playing good players. And that's simply mm -hmm. it. Um, and, I mean, of course, like, defending, like, 7-5 suited versus a three bet when you shouldn't do it but like you've decided to do it because you're down 30 big blinds and you want to try win the hand like you're not making a huge ev pump or whatever but like 
I think that once you start allowing one thing, then you start allowing more things and you become more complacent. And actually, I think complacency gets way more punished in the long run than, than, than consistency. So I would just rather consist. I'm just looking, looking to gain EV and I just think playing more consistently is better for that. Yeah, that's interesting because, for example, you're referring to the five, seven suited call to three bet is probably, you know, uh, uh, indifferent, right? Whether you call or fold. But I think actually that if you're in that state, probably the call is not going to be very plus V because you're going to you're gonna force the action on later streets. Yeah, you're right? not going to fold like, if you have third pair for two streets, maybe three streets. For example, do you take in consideration that there's a lot of pre-flop spots where playing playing three calling three betting or folding a hand is basically it's 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 all okay right it's all gto yeah. do you take in consideration that for example you are a little bit you're playing more tables you're a little bit more fatigued do you then take take in consideration or the fact that you might not you know be able to get the same ev as a solver and fold those hands more often or would you then just still rng it i would still rng it because the way I see it is if like I make a hundred decisions or, or maybe no more like 200 decisions in a year where I kind of allow myself to, to, here we go. If I allow myself to call a certain hand when I shouldn't, then I'm going to be over that year, the EV is going to, the EV loss is going to be significant enough for it to be unjustifiable. All right. So yeah, in the long term, maybe I didn't zoom in a little bit too much in the moment itself. Because I would yeah. say, for example, definitely take in consideration that when I'm fatigued, the spot is like a zero EV defense. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to play post-flop good enough given my current state that I won't be able to realize this EV. So actually the call yeah. would be negative EV. So yeah, and that's exactly why I think before I was saying like the more aware you are of what's going on for you before going into a session, you're much better positioned to set a session length. You're much better positioned to kind of check in with yourself mid-session to see if you need to quit um, and all that kind of stuff. Because I, whenever I go into a session, I always have a session length. I, I always know how long I'm going to play, and then I'm going to take a break. And sometimes, if I have like really good tables, I'll extend that a bit. But I will really prevent myself from playing fatigue for the most part, or at least try to. Of course, this isn't the perfect science. We can't we can't get it right all the time. But always trying to think of it in terms of EV and how much that fatigue would influence that EV. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, our 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 schedules look quite similar i also indeed before i play i'm going to play around three four hours maybe five i'll take a break somewhere in the middle depending on the action if the action is good all the time i'll just make it a three to four hour session if the action dies after two hours i'll take a longer break and come back for two or three hours something like that you know you're always trying to to, to indeed uh, uh manage your ev yeah. before you start playing you you've something that came back multiple times throughout this conversation is how how grateful you were for the fact that you're a poker player, right? How privileged you are to be in this situation. Is that something you remind yourself of before playing or what do you do before playing? Do you, mm. do you sort of step into that or what is the routine that you have? So I guess if I'm, if I'm up for playing or if I'm, if I'm neutral towards playing, I won't, I won't, but it will be when I don't want to play. Um, and usually the way I do it, if I don't want to play is I will, uh, if, if the games are bad, and I'm not in the right mindset, I will choose to study instead of play. So I will just not allow myself to play. Um, and if the games are good, I always just say to myself, like, I'm going to be, I'm going to do the best I can with this session that I'm going to play and nothing more than that and nothing less. And some of the time I've kind of gone, gone in with the kind of the mantra of like, if I do one thing or two things, I give myself two strikes that I know 
R minus EV or not the EV that I would have done if I was feeling good, I will just quit my session and I will study instead. So I kind of set myself parameters sometimes for, for, for that way of doing it. That's very interesting. This flex, I get a flashback of like the first ever poker book I read that suggested to keep three chips next to you. And if you make three <laughs> mistakes, you quit your session. There you so go. I remember I would go to my live casino and I would explain this to these people and I would have three chips. Then I would lose the pot and then someone would say, hey, one <laughs> chip away. I'd say, no, no, I mean, it wasn't a mistake. See, you're, the, re you're the reason poker players, players are so good, good now. Sorry? You're the reason poker players are so good now. You were teaching them from day one. Yeah, from day one. Actually, I, but I actually do like uh, like that approach. I think also something that I picked up on what you said is that you go in with understanding, you know, this might not be your best session, but you're still going to do it. And I think aligning this expectation and in general checking in with yourself before you start playing, like what is my mood and how can I align my expectations for this upcoming session? It's huge, huge for, not pre for, for preventing tilt, right? If I'm a little bit fatigued, I might still say, okay, I'm going to play, but, you know, probably A game is not going to show up. It will probably be B game, maybe some C game mistakes even. Mm -hmm. And then I find it way more likely that I'll actually end up grinding a good session. That if I would just go in and I would not be aware of my state, I would get frustrated because I'm making yeah. B or C game mistakes, right? And so I thought that was really an interesting point that I think a lot of players should, should take from mm -hmm. how you prepare for a session, just to check in and align. And it's really whether or not you, the checking in is whether or not you're going to be able to offer yourself compassion when you do play C game, when you're expecting to play C game. And if you exactly. can't, if you can't give yourself compassion for playing C game and losing five buy-ins, because you might lose five buy-ins at C game and you may have run still bad. And if you're then going to beat yourself up for having played, don't play. Like you need to be checking in. The compassion needs to be there from, from, from the beginning to say like, I'm not at my best. And is that good enough? Is that going to be good enough for future me who's going to be unhappy with the result that comes out? And if, if, if you're not going to be happy about it then then take a step back, it kind of reminds me of like, when, like, if, so like in therapy, like you have no choice, but to see your client, if they're going to come. Right. <laughs> and you don't have a choice to say, I'm not feeling my best. So I'm not going to see you. But you, I have to bring my best version of myself that's going to give as much of myself that I can potentially give to that person in that time. It's no different to that, really. You're just going to kind of, maybe you're going to be like a little bit more reserved. Maybe you're going to not give as many interpretations, but you're still going to be there to absorb and to, to be with what, what's kind of present. Yeah, you're, you're, you're still going to show up, right? You're going to show up and try to do the best you can, basically. Um, going going forward looking ahead you mentioned that the studying sessions with Kalenti have motivated you you know you've been moving up the stakes what are uh, what what are some some aspirations for mr benabebit at the poker tables where can we see you in the upcoming years so i'm playing mostly on acr i'm playing some stars playing a bit of 888 as well i'm playing uh, some uk betting sites as well um and I'm, and I'm going to be moving to Australia as well next year. So I'm hopefully going to be able to get on Ignition as well, maybe GG as well. I was actually watching a video, I think it was earlier, you were talking about um, playing on GG, playing more high stakes. And I'm exactly the same as you. I'm dropping 1K and I'm now thinking, focusing on 2K to 5K. That's pretty much where I want to establish myself now. Um, so I'm doing a bit of reg battling at 2K and 3K on ACR. I don't feel comfortable battling on stars because mm -hmm. uh, the reg pool and also the lack of rake and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but that is the goal. The goal is to be established at high stakes, um, which feels weird to even say, because like 
yeah, I should have like stopped poker like four years ago and I've kind of just consistently increased and moved up. So it's, it's quite a, quite weird hearing myself say that. Different experiences, different influences, right? I remember I had myself as well. It was uh, Explode 777. I don't know. Maybe you've played with him in the past. When I teamed up with him, he was yeah. like, okay, we're going to become the best. And I was just like you, you know, I was just grinding to pay, pay, pay for my living. You know, I didn't have higher aspirations. I mm. didn't, didn't really feel like it was possible. And maybe now you're studying with Clenty and you're seeing your progression, his progression has made you believe that, wait, actually we can, we can become better, right? Yeah. We can actually, we, we can actually do this for, it all starts with that, right? You have to believe that you can do it. Yeah. You have you the system, you have, you have the knowledge, that. you have the experience. There's no reason why, you know, you're going to fail a couple of times probably when you, when you shot where, you know, this is perfectly in line, but in the end, we're going to make it. Yeah, and I mean, like to be honest with you, it's been it's been a bit of a shock to the system. Like, I might I I started shot taking two K properly, like I don't know a couple of months ago, or no, no more than that, like earlier on in the year. And straight off the bat, I lost like thirty buy-ins at two K, like like that, like I was straight down sixty K, like immediately. So I'm like, okay, like here we go, like we're getting the baptism of fire, and now what do we do? Do we come back from this and that kind of thing? So that is that in itself is an adjustment period of the idea of swinging high stakes swings mm -hmm. lower win rates and harder games and stuff so how have you found that kind of battling how do you think you're going to find those kind of 50 100k down swings at 5k i mean for, for, for me the the benefit is that i've already experienced it like for me it's more like going back to where i was so okay. yeah it's, it's exactly what what i mentioned right i'm I'm 100% confident I'm going to make it. I have all the tools in place to find any answer that I want. I know how to solve any problem. Mm. So, yeah, it's just a matter of time, basically. That, that's how I see it. Uh, it. It becomes a problem when you start to put, you know, especially with, uh, you probably experienced this as well, in your blog or with me on Twitch, people say, yeah, you know, when when can we expect you next month? We should set a goal January, but I'm not, I'm not, too much, too much of putting pressure on when, right? Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to, trying to show up the best, the best I can, and when it happens, when I'm ready, it's gonna happen, basically. Yeah, it makes me honestly, it genuinely makes me really happy to hear other poker players, especially in our age bracket in the poker world now, actually aspiring to kind of move up and not get stuck where we were, or that we're limited, or that we have to somehow become extinct. Because I don't know about you, but I feel at the top of my game, I feel theoretically and cognitively and psychologically at the top of my game than I felt in my entire career. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is a really exciting feeling and really exciting to hear you say that, that you feel the same way because it just shows how like the sky's the limit, really. We all thought poker was dying 11 years ago. And actually, apparently... Yeah, it's they, they said it now. 11 years ago. They said it eight years ago. Every year they say poker is dead. Every year. Do you remember 10 years ago that they said that? And look yeah, at you now, 10 years later, moving up through the ranks. Yeah, and now I'm watching like like Stefan play Linus heads up, playing the streetest of poker and like having this crushing red line, completely deviating everywhere. And it's just like, what are we like? Are we going back in time or like is this game way more complicated than everyone thinks it is? And I think it's the latter. It is. And I think a big a big thing is that we, we, we talked about all the way in the beginning. Now you have the experience, right? Compared to that first year where you wanted to try to try to play Supernova Elite. It's just, it's not possible. You're not ready for it. You need a certain amount of experience to handle everything that the journey to becoming a high stakes poker player is going to throw at you. You just need experience. 
There, there's no way around yeah. it. You cannot, you cannot cheat. You cannot create a shortcut. Also in terms of your self-image, you need to play a certain amount of volume at a certain stake for you to really truly look at yourself deep inwards like, I belong here. I am a 2K rack or I'm a 5K rack. Yeah. In order to, yeah. to really have that sense that you are a 5K rack, you need to prove it to yourself, right? And for that, mm -hmm. you need volume. So you it takes time, yeah. right? Else it's going to be fragile and the, the small downswing will, will, will knock you off. Yeah. And actually, that's something you talked about. And I was Adam, someone linked to me a video that you made. Uh, I don't know when you made it, but it was about ego between high stakes players and mid stakes players. And I was watching that yesterday. And actually, just it really it kind of resonates with what we're talking about now. Like, I, 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 coming up, I was like, I need to prove myself. I need to be the best. And I still feel like I need to prove myself, but I need, I feel like I need to be less vocal about needing to prove myself. It's like I'm proving myself to myself now as opposed to needing affirmation from every other person that I come into contact with in the poker world. It's also interesting what you mentioned about other players moving down, right? We experience sort of the same threat. It's like things are getting, poker is getting quote, quote, tougher, people are getting better. Then it, it all depends on your response, right? It fires you up, it fires me up. Whereas other players are like, okay, now in order to, to win, I have to move down, okay? Or they're like, ah, it's way too challenging now, 2K. Oh, wait, actually at 1K, my hourly is higher, so I'll play 1K. They actually, that's how they rationalize it, right? Not understanding yeah. that long-term, that mentality will, you know, there's a lot, if you now go to the Huntanel Zoom pool or 2 Zoom pool, there's a lot of axe, higher stakes players that are grinding there right now because they had that mentality. They didn't see it in the long term. They thought, oh, if I just move down one stake, hey, wait, the money is way better here. That's a short-term solution. Short-term, maybe, yes, the next month you'll make more money. But long-term... Is, 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 is a road downwards. That's so true. And actually, in Adam's question earlier, he said, he asked me what was the difference between before and now. And that was exactly it. It was just being on the curve or just being below the curve. And I've realized in the past four years that actually I can continue to be above the curve if I choose to be. And that was just a complete revelation, like that you can you can be good and actually you can be better than other people and that you can still actually succeed. The idea of and being behind the curve, oh my god, it's stressful. Trying to keep up with the curve is is like tiring, really tiring. Uh, it takes it out of you. Really good stuff, really good stuff. So what, what are you excited for at the moment in poker? You guys are studying, you, Clenty. What are you kind of working on right now? What what fires you up? What are you curious about? Uh, what fires me up is is uh, money, definitely improving uh, higher competition, establishing myself against players that have, have I've always looked up to. Um, not necessarily being better than them, but just being able to kind of play with them feels great. Um, and also just to continue to improve, really. Um, the goal is just to continue playing poker until I don't enjoy it anymore. And while I enjoy poker, while I feel okay to do it, while I can make money, while I can use that money and freedom to do all the other things that I want to do in my life, like I'm going to, I have a reason to keep studying and keep getting good and keep, and keep remaining where I am. So that is the, the on table goal. Um, an off-table goal is that I'm going to be moving to Australia. I'm going to be closing down my therapy practice because my license doesn't cover me in Australia. So I'm going to take a year in Oz, if I can get ever get out there with Corona, um, with my girlfriend. And we're going gonna, gonna to play full-time poker, see how that goes, figure out what I want to do longer term. And hopefully I'll have an answer to that question in yeah, a year's time, basically.
Yeah, thanks. I, it was really, really fun. You guys have, um, I think you've got a good thing going with the with both of you on the podcast to kind of cover the two aspects, the main two aspects of poker. It's actually a really, really cool format. That's good to hear. Do you have any last words, Ben, that you would like to share with our audience? No, I think we've covered everything. And uh, I'm, yeah, just thanks again for, for bringing me on. And I hope some people can find a bit or some value from this and can apply it to their own poker game and uh, maybe ask themselves like important questions that, that could be helpful for them in their poker career. I want to thank you a lot for being on. You've delivered a lot of value. I'm sure a lot of our audience will learn from it or be inspired by it. And I'm uh, looking forward to uh, battle, battle you out on the streets. Actually, <laughs> but actually, we don't really play because you, you usually play night times, right? No, I play uh, like late afternoon, late afternoon, evening. Yeah, and I, I, I start in the morning and play until max late afternoon. So that's yeah. why we never we never come across each other. Yeah, maybe in the coming... When I'm in maybe Australia. it's for the best, right? When I'm in Australia. Maybe it's for the best. <laughs> all right, thank you a lot. And uh, for every, all the audience as well for tuning in again. And uh, see you in the next pod. All right, that was Ben Raven, a.k.a. Benabet Beat. Great conversation. What were your main takeaways, Adam? So many things to unpack from that. But some of the main takeaways I got are some of the things I thought really interesting were when he was talking about emotions and being more in tune with his feelings. And I feel like he did a very good job of talking about the poker players' problems in terms of we're often very analytical. We're using our cognitive mind to try to solve problems. As a result, we just push emotions aside or suppress them. And he was talking about how his journey was all about allowing himself to feel emotions. And he went down a very different route to most people where he went into psychotherapy, where he would basically give himself a safe space to explore the outer edges of his emotional states to allow himself to feel safe in that environment. And that would then transition back to the pocket tables when he's had a till episodes and he's familiar with his emotional states. So that was a very interesting a segue he took away from poker, which really transitioned into his poker career. So I think a lot of good takeaways around introspective work, working on yourself, whatever that means. I thought it was very interesting how he always had a core group of people around him, both early in his career and later in his career to help him on his journey. Uh, and yeah, I think the, just the consistent application of working on himself has led him to a very good place. And I was very pleased to hear 12 years into his poker career He's peaking in terms of enjoyment of the game, which I find is quite rare. So, uh, yeah, lots of stuff to take away and I find it very refreshing my conversation. So I'm looking forward to hearing what the audience make of that. What were your main takeaways, Renny? Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, one thing that really stood out, right, he was very appreciative all the time. And I think that kind of... People are often frustrated with poker, right, because they want something out of it. And also in the end, when he said, like, I just want to play with the best, you know, and if I'm there just playing, it's already good enough. You understand? He doesn't even have to beat them. And I think these are all really indicators for good performance, right? He's very appreciative. If this is it, he's just happy that he can show up today and play poker. He doesn't want a certain outcome. So it doesn't make him frustrated if things don't go his way because basically he just wanted to go play poker and have fun, right? So I think that that was really interesting. Indeed, also what you said, the core group kept on coming back. I thought that the checking in, sitting with his emotions, checking in before he would play, thought was very important. And also, he mentioned that when he started to study with with Clenty, right, having a study buddy, be, it was very structured. It's not like I how I think a lot of players who are now listening 
um, approach studying, but he had fixed hours, they had fixed topics. They really, he even mentioned that he had topics to talk about for the next year, right? That they were going to study. He studied one spot for four to five months, okay? Some serious reflecting right now. This is what players who are trying to reach the highest stakes possible are currently doing, okay? So reflect on your own study habits in there as well. And then I thought it was interesting as well when he had a higher purpose, he was just playing poker for the, you know, for the money. But then when he saw that he could actually get more satisfaction out of the game, he had the belief, you know, seeing what the study work that he was doing with Clenty, seeing how they will move up. He now believes that he can actually make it, right? He now has the experience. He's already been playing poker for a very long time. So this is his moment. And I think this is for him when it will all come together. I'm pretty sure uh, uh, he will play 5K, 10K more consistently over the, over, the, over the next year. Very happy with how it turned out. I want to thank everyone for tuning in again and see you guys in the next episode. Now, if you learned something in this episode, we would much appreciate it if you like and subscribe. Leave a comment with your main takeaways. Give us a five-star rating and follow the pod. This way we can reach more players and help them reach their big and ambitious poker goals. And if you want us to help you get to those goals, go over to pokerambition.com to find out more.